Well, hello, welcome back to Candy Corner. I'm Ken. This is Andy. We talk about a couple of different poli- political things, things that keep us in- keep us interested, make our brain cells try and make sense of this world. Today, we're going to be talking about a couple of different um, different topics. We're going to be wrapping up our information that uh, we've collected and looked at for the coronavirus. And uh, we're also going to be looking at a couple of other things later on in the show. First, um, what I'd like to do is just say a word of condolence to Officer French, a female officer who was killed in Chicago and unfortunately couldn't even have, couldn't even have uh, a proper send off thanks to uh, Deputy Carter, it says here. Uh, Deputy Carter, let me give this, um, Deputy Eric Carter is being called out for disrespecting fallen officer French. Carter was the one that reportedly decided to cut the ceremony for the officer short. The report claimed that the first deputy superintendent Carter was was heard on recorded audio demanding the Chicago fire department ambulance use that was used to transport the officer to be denied the bagpipe ceremony. Quote, we don't have 20 minutes for this shit, Carter was allegedly recorded telling the Chicago Fire Department. Quote, we're not waiting on the bagpipes. Go ahead and get the vehicle inside. Take it all the way inside. Do not stop. Now, Lori Lightfoot herself has come to his defense and said that what what he did was proper because, wait for it, COVID, because of COVID restrictions of social distancing that he made the officer's time being given and her final salute was necessary to, or okay to be cut short because of COVID restrictions. However, less than a week ago or right around a week ago, she was seen up at Lollapalooza amongst hundreds of people, thousands of people, tens of thousands of people with no mask partying it up. Um, if this doesn't scream hypocrisy, I don't know what does. If this doesn't scream, you are not, you as police officers and even firemen in the Chicago metropolitan area, if you had any question, if you were to be, if you were supported or you would be backed up at the end of the day when all the political fray would be settled down and something as important as someone's final send off for falling in the line of duty would be, if you had any question, don't any longer. They do not care about you. And I am so sorry. As a former firefighter myself and paramedic, I can tell you, and as blessed to be my, my department's chaplain, I know, crazy, right? Um, there's nothing more important than a final send-off for someone that's passed away in the line of duty. Um, death is inevitable. It's coming for all of us. No one leaves this earth alive. But when someone dies in a specific way that's caused by a passion, desire, need, want to help a fellow man, that should be honored. And I think it's absolutely despicable. I will praise the Fraternal Order of uh, Police Lodge number seven says that they've released a statement explaining that they have officially entered a log into Carter's file due to the Chicago Police Department's inaction. <clears throat> so the department itself will not take any <clears throat> action against Superintendent um, Deputy Carter. They will not, the um, the mayor will not do any action against this person, but thankfully the fraternal order of police is. Um, 
for those of you that are unaware of what that is or the federal firefighters association when i was before i was brought on officially to a fire department uh, on paid status i worked with an ems service that ran in tandem with a fire department and i'm not going to mention the department or the gentleman's name involved but um long story short a young man almost lost his life he had a heart attack while performing overhaul um the dude was a beast last person in the world you would have ever thought to have any type of cardiac issues whatsoever worked on him brought him to the hospital while he was in the hospital for approximately i think he was there for a total of two or three weeks one member of the fire at least one member of the fire department was there around the clock 24 hours a day seven days a week on rotation waiting for him to come out of coma and let him know that he was not alone his family who was out of state were flown in given room and board food all paid for um rental car paid for all out of the uh uh association's budget and that's what they do that's what these guys do and this isn't free this isn't something that comes out of tax dollars of the american public this is an extra amount that every firefighter pays out of their own personal check um in order to ensure that each one of us is taken care of and our families are taken care of in the event of the worst case scenario like that. Um, thankfully, he made it through. He retired and he's off doing bigger and better things. Lord be with him, bless him, and bless every member of that fire department that was there with him during that period of time. When you have upper brass that refuse to acknowledge not only the day in and day out grueling work and routine that you do, and I don't care if you're a city sweeper, collect, garbage collector, cop, firefighter, doesn't matter. If you have upper brass above you that specifically and in the city chain of command that is of political sway or um, origin, you have, a, you have a right. You have a right to vote your next boss in. And as we've seen lately, that's come into question if that's even legitimate now. So all I can say is, Ladies and gentlemen of the first responder career fields, um, all we have is each other and uh, keep each other safe. And if any of you feel like you're being given an order that is unlawful, is tyrannical in any way, I, I'm praying for you and I pray for your conscience and I pray for unity and solidarity in every department and every agency nationwide that, uh, Good men don't stand by and let bad people do bad things. But that's all I wanted to say. And uh, fuck that guy, Carter, because 20 minutes is nothing when it's the last moments family gets to say goodbye to someone that they love or a brother gets to say goodbye to someone that they work with. And I pray for their soul. But anyway, on other notes, you can find all that information out at TatumReport.com. TatumReport.com. Dude's a avid... Uh, conservative slash Republican, former cop, and uh, he has a book out. He's not a sponsor of the show of any kind whatsoever. He doesn't even know we exist. He probably wouldn't even want to associate with us because of how crazy we are, and that's fine. <clears throat> I don't care if anyone disavows us that we promote or I promote. I don't care. You got to do what you got to do to put food on your table, and if having us be a part of your conversation does that, then I don't, I don't mind. I get it. Do what you got to do, boo. But um. He's got a book out, but hit that like and subscribe button. Yeah, <laughs> he's, a, 
<laughs> he's a good dude. He's a good dude. So anyway. Yeah, I was watching a little bit of that at my neighbor's house since she has uh, OAN on 24-7 and I was fixing some of her shit at her house. And I was like, mm, who could have seen this happen? Who yeah. could have seen this coming? Yeah, but, you know, this is what gets me, man. The left sees a fentanyl addict who has committed armed robbery, put a gun to a pregnant woman's stomach, pistol whipped her amidst five of his buddies who also ransacked her apartment and stole her stuff, then try and buy something with a bunk $20 bill, have an interaction with the police officers, does not comply, does nothing but cry and complain. Video evidence shows proof that the officer's knee was not on his neck. Using department-led tactics in restraint, they'll go and riot and burn billions of dollars worth and loot billions of dollars and kill more other black people than cops did for that year in a few months. But officers like this woman who can't even have a proper send-off and nothing will be said about it. Nothing will be done. Give it a week. Give it a week. She was deal. new, wasn't she? She looked pretty new to the department. She was on the department, I think, about three years. Mm, she's pretty but new. said that she had, a, she had made a large impact in her community and in, in the actual department itself. So it sounds like she was, she was a leader. I have a friend of mine that's a cop in Chicago. Jeez. And uh, all I do is I, I have to talk to her at some point and go, why are you still a cop in Chicago? She's been a cop there for, I think, five years now, I think. I don't know. But she's been a cop there. She was one of the people I knew in the army. And then she went to become a cop. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why in Chicago? <laughs> why? Well, that's, that's, uh, uh, I, I, you know, you should shoot your guidance counselor. Fuck. I can't, I can't compare anything I've ever done to something like, you know, work in our city beat and somewhere like Chi Town. But the, um, one of oh, the, speaking of Chirac. Stuff, like I, uh, I found a video. It was the sounds of Chicago at night, and this guy's like sitting on his porch, and all he hears, and then I uh, showed it to my wife, and I was like, uh, "Listen to this." And she's like, "Where in the fuck is this?" I'm like, "It's Chirac." <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I remember getting like, into yeah. a since we're talking about it. I got into an argument with this leftard about two of them about Chicago, and. I was told, unironically, that it was propaganda that Chicago was violent and it was actually a really safe city and only the Trumpers want it to be violent so that mm. they can scare people, that, that people will be more scared of black people and Mexican people. Like, yeah, have you ever been to Chicago? Well, I haven't been to Chicago. I went downtown once to an art museum and it was safe. <laughs> oh, well, good for you. <laughs> you do realize Chicago is more than the art center, right? And... Uh, yeah, I it's a fucking Chicago, man. Well, I'm glad, but, but I will say this uh, as a, as a, you know, uh, being the silver lining that I am embodied in flesh out of all the chaos in the universe, out of all the chaos in our country. And no one knows what side is up or anything. The thing we can rely on is that Chicago will always be shit. And the VA will always give you hepatitis. We can always go back to those two constants. And those will, those are never going away. Those will never go away. True. I don't know why Those people fucking live in Chicago, honestly. Why the fuck would you live there? Money. 
I think a lot of people have the idea, like, for example, and I almost got caught up in that. That's a good question. Um, being a medic, I, I get random. I'm sure you do in your field of profession as well. You'll get random emails. I'm sure everybody does to a certain degree based on whatever your career field is and the demand at the time of the year and whatever in the economy and blah, blah, blah. But I get random emails from different companies, corporations, third parties, contractors, whatever, <clears throat> with different job offers. And I got a job offer for a paramedic position in Washington, D.C., one for an outer portion of Chicago. It ended up being like a suburb. I don't know anything about Chicago. It was probably, I would assume, one of the better parts based on the pay. I don't know. But, <clears throat> and then I got one for New York, not New York fire. I'll get your panties all wet. It was for uh, another private, private company. And for the same job that I had done in Alabama was paying almost three times. It was two and a half times the amount for New York, one and a half for DC and almost two times for Chicago. DC we, was fucking dope. When I was a volley in Maryland, we would get poached by the DC fire service all the time. They paid a lot of money for firefighter yeah. ones for EMTs. They've paid a lot. And that was, I, that was one of the reasons, one of the reasons I was thinking about staying in DC was I was like, I could make a lot of money really quick. And all I got, and I know what those DC fire guys do. So I got, all I gotta do is sit on my ass. <laughs> That's so, all I gotta do is sit on my ass in a really nice fire station. Now, I don't know what it's like in DC. I have never lived there. I've never lived in Chicago. I've never lived in New York, but doing a quick Google foo search based on cost of living, the number sounded great. The numbers sounded awesome that I'd be making annually, but the amount that I would be pulling in, bringing home after taxes, number one, number two, after state or city or county or entity tax of any kind, plus the cost of living, I would be making less than what mm -hmm. I was making in Alabama. So when I think a lot of people ask, why would anyone go there? I think a lot of it is because people get the initial sticker shock of, oh, I could make that amount of money. And I'll be honest, there was a part of me that was like, yeah, I mean, even if it, even if it balanced out, like even if it was, you know, tit for tat at the end of the day, I still kind of considered it in the back of my mind because it was like, man, I could say that I made that amount of money in my life. You know what I mean? Mm. I could say that I earned X amount of dollars versus only X amount of dollars. And it comes back down to pride. It comes back down to maybe some people want the experience. They just want to do two and do, you know, do, do time and dip. Um, but Chicago, they did two and they flew, you know, two years and they dipped out, but I don't know, man. I think a lot of it is family. If you have family in the area, also, if you've lived in that kind of environment, people typically don't necessarily leave because they're acclimated to it. They're used to it. Um, and, the let's be honest, people are stupid. The idea of prestige of being able to say that I live in such a rough area and I can survive, or it's not that bad or whatever the case may be. When in reality, it's just like crabs in a pot. You know, you, you may be able to say, yeah, it's rough here, but instead of struggling and striving and, and scrimping to get out of that situation, they would much rather just say, meh. 
instead of saving to move, I'm just going to buy a new car or whatever and just keep trekking on. And the fear of the unknown, the feel, the feeling of needing to have some type of validation. And that's, that's what I think a lot of humanity is going through right now is feeling invalidated. We don't really have a solidified, unified enemy. We do, but we don't see it. Um, we don't have a world war to go and fight. We don't have a enemy that wears a uniform that we have to go and defend ourselves against. We don't have um, a depression upon us that we are in the mindset of scrimping and saving for or through. Rather, we look at hard times and say, well, I'm going to pull out my trusty old credit card and keep trucking and pay that off later and deal with it another day, similar to our national debt. And the one unified enemy that we do have, we don't see through unified eyes because we don't see collectively the damages that are being done to us on a daily basis. It's like the Bible says, the enemy will come at night and move your property line inches at a time. If you have a hundred acres and your neighbor picks up your posts and moves your posts four inches, you're not going to really notice out of a hundred acres, but after generations, your hundred acres turns into 50, which is still a lot. Well, then it'll turn into 25. Well, it's still a pretty good chunk, which will then turn into 10. Well, it's not bothering me. It doesn't affect my daily life. And then it'll turn into seven and five. And then eventually you're butt up next to your neighbor where you can hear each other fart. Mm -hmm. And you look back and go, how did this happen? A little bit at a time. How did we get to the point where we're talking in 2021 that we're having to show some type of A, identification, B, medical identification to be able to go to a bar, to be able to go to a concert, to be able to go to a baseball game? We have a group of people who were so adamant about calling everybody a Nazi who unironically are the same group of people demanding to show papers. Mm -hmm. There's a that's one of the things I've been. You know, I, I have a lot of free time if, if anyone couldn't uh, figure that out already. But one of the things I like to think about is logical fallacies, mm. since, again, I have a lot of fucking free time. And the one that is there's two that come up a lot. And that would be the, um, you know, uh, like the two authority fallacy. So you got to listen to them since they're, uh, you know, they got a license. They, they obviously know that it's an authority fallacy. And there's that one. And then the slippery slope fallacy and both of those. And me and my friend years ago talked about stuff like this. And what we, what I categorize them as is irrational, but not unfounded fallacies. So there's some fallacies that you can go like, this isn't, this is stupid. And you can pick them out real easy and you can ignore the argument thereafter. But those two, are really hard to do that with since they're, they're both irrational since you shouldn't listen to a doctor only due to the fact that they got a license that says they're a doctor. There's no reason that you should listen to them since if they're right, they're right. But then if your neighbor's right and your neighbor unclogs toilets after Chipotle night, that doesn't matter. Like being right is right. It doesn't matter Correct. who's right as long as you're right. And at the same well, it's like time, it's a broken clock is still right twice a day. Yeah. Blind squirrel will find a nut once in its life. There's yeah. all these, and that's just a paradoxical that, thing, you know? 
But in that analogy of the clock, it doesn't denounce in any way, shape or form the two times that it's right. It does speak volumes that it's broken, but mm-hmm. it still doesn't devalue yeah. the fact that it's still right twice. It's still right, you know, and in those certain circumstances. So like with both the authority fallacy and the slippery slope, there's no rational reason why you should fall for it and use it in your arguments, but it's not unfounded. Well, <laughs> so I it's think how many, reason- you know, it, 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 it makes sense. Like you're like, well, okay, on average, how much medical knowledge does the average guy have against a doctor? You know, on average, the doctor's going to have more. So therefore, you should listen to them. But that's irrational mm. to, an, to an extent, since, well, it doesn't matter about that. Like, anyone can learn anything if you read enough books. Correct. You know, it doesn't matter what your credentials are. Correct. You know, it should be that you're right. But it's not unfounded since, well, enough times this is right. So we should listen to it. Same thing with the slippery slope thing. And that's the one I have the most difficulty uh, dealing with is that there's no rational reason you should believe in the slippery slope since X doesn't always equal Y. And that doesn't always mean Z. You know, it doesn't have to follow a logical train. It doesn't have to go that way. Well, I think a lot of the reason why people focus on that so much as to what is your background? What is your field of education? What is your vast base of knowledge in comparison to do you have authenticity in what it is you're speaking of? I think the reason is because a people don't want to take personal responsibility, meaning that if you're going back to your analogy, if you're a plumber, right? And what you're saying about medical information is accurate. But then I come out and say, well, are you a doctor? No, you're a plumber. That, to a large degree, gives the impression that what you just said, even if it was completely factually proven true, to be less in weight and value because, well, shit, if he can be right and he's not a doctor, what did he do that I didn't do? Why does Mm -hmm. he and I don't? I don't want to take the responsibility of having to go and look at medical journals. I don't want to have the responsibility of going and looking up my own medical information. I don't want the response. People don't even have their own wherewithal to keep their own medical list of medicines that they take on a, on a daily basis. When they go to the doctor's office, people can't even remember their dosage amounts. You think they're really going to want to go and mm-hmm. find out information on things that are potential future endeavors of their medical journey in life. They're not going to give a crap as long as their iPhone's working, as long as their Netflix is running and as long as their beer's cold they don't give a crap about anything else in life because everybody lives in their isolated little bubble where as long as their little world isn't rocked or felt any vibrational waves of other people's lives they don't care and they'll do whatever is the easiest and the quickest way to keep any outside influence or influencing factor comfort zone down to a minimum and ended that's why you see so many businesses put up blm posters in their windows to try and find favor with these rage mobs so their business isn't burned down regardless of the fact if it's a home mom and pop shop regardless if it's a black owned business regardless if it's a minority owned business regardless if it's a franchise that's owned by a major conglomerate people don't care you know what's funny how many walmarts have been rioted and burned down how many targets how many how many major businesses have very few in comparison to mom and pop shops and those that do get rioted and burned down They're your shoe shops, they're your sports stores, and your Walgreens because of narcotics. And those places 
What do they do in response? They pull their businesses out of those neighborhoods. And what does that do to the neighborhood? It throws it further down the rabbit hole of trash. And people mm-hmm. don't see that. So I think you're right about the, um, the diffusion of responsibility aspect. But I think there's also a, another component that people, in order to operate with any sort of direction in society, we need to have a base level of trust. So we establish these licensures and these, these credentialing you know, bureaucracies as a way a shorthand for trustworthiness so that we we want to be able to trust these people and if we and that's what the the authority fallacy so like the authority fallacy everyone will be oh you're not a real doctor blah 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 blah. and you know and that one's fair enough all right fair enough i get that you know but at the same time people realize that the one out of ten doctors suggest shoving slugs up your ass to lower cholesterol is a bullshit fucking argument. They're like, who gives a shit? Who are these fucking doctors? Like who gives a shit? So uh, one half, one side, we know that it's a marketing boy and that it's fucking bullshit. And on the other side, we need to continuously delude ourselves into believing in the authority so that we can orient ourselves and that we have to, and if we, if we get rid of that trust, then it this like then then it's a whole snowballing effect. Well, then who else is wrong? Is the, all of this fucking? And then you get into this, st- and then no one likes to be in that uncertainty unless you're me. Because nobody wants to take the responsibility of finding out information. And then you know, home. then you get the you know, it's a circle. Um, it's a circle. But like like I like I said, my bigger thing is the slippery slope thing. Since there shouldn't be, there's no rational reason why legalizing gay marriage leads to pedophilia <laughs> there it shouldn't be any rational logical way you get from point a yeah there to is point b in there you know what i'm saying but like my body, but here's my the choice, thing so like i've been ta- i've been having argument i've had arguments and arguments and arguments for decades about this and then you get the slippery slope argument as a rebuttal look it's not about that it's like you said they're moving the the fence post another inch and they're moving another inch. And then next time you look, you're not going to have nothing fucking left. But again, that's not rational since why would it, there's a whole bunch of other variables that can stop that or move it back or do whatever. But the fact is we have so many data points in everybody's lives that prove that that's not a bad fallacy. That's more true than it is false that these things slide and they always slide. It's the worst part about it, though. If you go back to the late 80s, early 90s of the what was originally conservative, what was originally libertarian and what was originally um, Republican, Democrat or um, libtard, the pro gay agenda then was we just want to be able to get married. Right. We just want to be able to classify our taxes the same way as a married couple so we can get the same tax breaks. That was the argument by today's standard. Sure. Of course. Why not? Right. But the defense argument against that was, and then they're going to come for your kids. If you can marry a man, if a man can marry a man, then he's going to want to marry a goat or a woman, a woman, she's going to want to marry a kid or whatever the case was. And everybody said, that's ridiculous. That's that's barbaric, that's closed-minded, that's whatever. Flash forward 30 years, for, look at where we're at. Mm-hmm. 
And that's the and thing. Like logically, these steps could be seen. These steps <clears throat> could be foretold, but people didn't want to believe it. Well, the way I look at it is, it depends on how how cynical you are about the actors involved. That's the way I look at it. So if you look at it, if you like look at it the way I look at it, with that, that I'll approach these things. I'm looking at it as the argument itself. And then you look at it and you go, well, there's no argument against it. I don't understand the argument. And it's like, well, the religion says this isn't right. Well, not everyone has the same religion. All right. And then you can argue along those lines. And but if you're focused on the argument itself, but not the actors making the argument, if you're not looking at the actors and their allegiances and all that, you're missing the bigger point. So the people that make the slippery slope arguments more likely than not when they're being honest about it. And we and also like it's really easy to point to um, examples where the slippery slope was true. You know, it's really easy to point at that. That's a confirmation bias thing. But there's also plenty of times where it isn't true either. You know, and that's one of those weird things with these fallacies is that, you know, people psychologically, if I'm if I'm remembering my data right, it's people focus on negative events. I think it's like two to four times stronger than positive events right. that is in 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 that's against your confirmation bias you will right. focus on the negative thing even though there's a bunch of data or a bunch of examples that say that that was a you know it was a rarity like you know i'm not saying you know it, it doesn't matter you know but when it comes to these fallacies people will focus on the confirmation side of it not the negative side of it you know and it's these one of these things i'm wrestling with is that like well, what do you do since I'm like, some of these fallacies are obvious, like the, the one that I've been going up against, you know, personally is the, you know, the no true Scotsman fallacy fallacy. So it's like, well, we got to listen to experts on COVID. We got to listen to the, the experts. Well, what's your definition of expert? Well, someone who spent a decade of their life studying this stuff. I've studied spent a decade of my life studying it. Well, you're not an expert. Well, okay, then what else is your what else is your criteria? Well, it has to be somebody who has a license. I have a license. Well, that, well, not you though. You're not an expert. It has to be someone who went to medical school. I went to medical school. Oh, that doesn't matter. You're not a real. Oh, okay. So like those things, like that's the one that I get up that I'm, you know, I deal with regularly is that one, and I've you know come to ignore it and then troll the fuck out of them, and then uh you know up my drinking. That's number three for those keeping count. Third drink on my desk. But but like a lot of those, fall the straw man fallacy, all that. People are really good at looking through that typically, but it's the authority one and the slippery slope one that I think people have a real hard time dealing. And I don't know if they should even be called fallacies, you know, since they're, they're half truths. Those are half truths. Half of the time they're right, half of the time they're wrong. Well, what do you do with that? Like, what are you supposed to do with that? Like, I'm not about to go to a plumber and ask for a surgery. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do that. But does that mean that a plumber couldn't do a surgery if he was experienced enough in it? No, I knew a guy that was a, uh, uh, in one of my research groups who was a um, gastro into, what is it? What's the word? Gastro and whatever the fuck, a fucking ass doctor. And he did that for like 10 years and he did all the board certification. Then he left it and became a lab assistant, a research assistant with the rest of us. And I went, why? He's like, I don't like looking at people's asses all day. <laughs> so then you're like, well, 
you should probably listen to him about, you know, your hemorrhoids. Right. <laughs> he probably knows something about it. But if you didn't know that, you know, right. even though he's 100% right on it, you'd be like, well, you're not a doctor. And that's one of those 50-50 things, you know? Well, I don't know. You know, people listen to me rant about fucking viruses and shit. And my, you know, my close friends, they know that I spent a decade doing this shit and that I, you know, I was involved in a bunch of projects and did all that shit. And they're like, oh, okay, I'll listen to you. So they come to me and they ask me for, well, what should I do? What, what happened? But then the other half don't know that. So they're like, well, what's your fucking credentials? And I'm like, I'm a guy on the internet that talks a lot. <laughs> they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to really listen to you. But it's one of those 50-50 things. And the same thing with the slippery slope thing. So it turned out, and I, you know, I'll go on the record as saying this, and I, I don't really have any pleasure in saying it, but that the gay marriage thing was the start of that slide. It started there. And then it was, well, you know, maybe we should do this. And, then, and next thing you know, we got trannies beating the fuck out of women in sports. And then, well, don't worry about that. And it slid, slid, slid. And now it's like, well, you know, maybe you should allow this guy to fuck your kid. How did we get there from that? Well, it's the actors that were not being genuine the whole time. They used the argument. That's a very solid logical argument as a Trojan horse to go and do what they want. Since like, I know gay people that aren't, a, aren't with this. I know right. tranny, like legitimate transsexuals who are not in with this. They're like, right. why are you doing this? No one asked for this. <laughs> this right. is not what we want. Right. And they were fodder and they were a good lip service when they needed the argument to win. And then there were a smoke post moved. And then they went on with their slide. same thing. And, that's, and you know, it's one of those things I have a hard time dealing with. So like I go on and I learn, I read about, you know, whatever conspiracy du jour of the week and I'm reading it. And you know, I see people connecting the dots and then this is going to happen. And then I'm like, yeah, but is it like, <laughs> That's a slippery slope thing. And I don't know if that's going to work. And 50% of the time it is. And 50% of the time it isn't. And you're dealt with this weird fucking conundrum. Well, what do you do? Do you always side with, well, it's true. Or do you side with it's false? No, I don't think you can do either. I think that's the point of freedom and true democracy is that, or democracy of a Republic. Let me put it that way. But I'm saying like on a, on a one-to-one basis, a person-to-person basis, what are you going to do in your daily life? Since like, I remember listening to my parents. I was living with my parents in college. They were, um, they were fanatic Glenn Beck. And I, I have no love for Glenn Beck. But it, it, I don't like guys that cry. And I really don't like guys that cry on national television. I, I, I'm like, hey, shut the fuck up. Would you man the fuck up for a second? <clears throat> You're talking about George Washington. Stop fucking crying. And then his teeth fell out. <laughs> Who gives a fuck? <clears throat> it was made of ivory. Uh, you know and um speaking and that's of really at mount vernon they got his fake fucking teeth and that's fucking weird to look at You're like oh <laughs> that's that's odd that's an odd display i'm glad it's here but it's odd um but i remember hearing his shit and he was going on these slippery slope arguments about how since van jones is in the is a advisor to the white house we're going to become soviet russia in three years and I'm like, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. How do you fucking? And then he made the die and he brought out his chalkboard and shit, fucking bootleg Ross Perot. And he's like, nobody listening to this fucking podcast knows who the fuck Ross Perot was, bro. No one knows who who the based god Ross Perot was. His chalkboard is so based. When he pulls that out, you know you're in for it. Go get some popcorn and some tequila. 
And here's the thing. It starts with George Washington. How do we start there? We'll get there when we get there. And, you know, that, well, and then I find myself doing that same fucking thing. Now I'm like, so then Remus and Romulus are bred, are raised by the she-wolf. How, what does this have to do with 9-11? We will get there when we get there. <laughs> we nice. got to start somewhere. So we're starting, we're starting, you know, but then like I was, and then all that shit, almost everything he said, I don't think anything he said in the past 10 years has come to fruition. Every one of his slippery slopes falls, but then every one of Alex Jones's is right. You know, he's like, listen, they're going to they're gonna start breeding people with mice and then they're going to start fucking harvesting organs from babies. And you're like, how the fuck did we get there from the IRS raising the tax bracket on fucking the Tea Party <laughs> organizations? And he is fucking right. He's fucking right. So then you, I'm stuck here in this weird spot where I'm like, well, half of the time it's right. Half the time it's wrong. What the fuck do I do with that? <laughs> well, I <laughs> think know? I think a lot of it comes down to for me. And I'm not always right. I'm not saying I am. A lot of it comes down to spiritual discernmentship. And I know that that brings in a new element into the equation that's beyond physical and elemental. But having an understanding of the human psyche as well as nature can lend a large um, viewing glass crystal ball into what humans will end up doing. And what I mean by that is, for example, I would consider myself a Christian conservative libertarian. Now, those are three very commonly thrown around words. What I mean by that is conservative. I believe in what I do is my business. What you do is your business. I don't want to be involved and I don't want to involve you unless it's a chosen decision on both parties. I'm pretty sure that's the libertarian side. But go on. Well, and that flows into libertarian, but conservatism and the idea of traditional ideas. I am also, I would consider myself by initial definition, not 2021s, but 1931s, uh, a chauvinist. I'm very pro-America. I love my country. I'm very patriotic. However, I don't love everything my country does. And a lot of it I find disgusting. And I'm the first one that I would honestly agree with the idea of a boogaloo coming about. But, <clears throat> and the Christian aspect into that mix says, <clears throat> I believe in traditional ideologies. The libertarian, using your words, would say, I believe this and this is how I approach life. If that isn't how you approach yours, that's fine. I don't want our lives to intermingle unless we choose to have that happen. And the Christian part of me says, if you so choose to intermingle in my life, unwelcomed and unannounced, I pray that I choose forgiveness more than I choose retaliation. However, the patriotic aspect kicks back in and says, you won't tread on me. You won't do that on a regular basis. Fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice. Fool me, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. <laughs> fool me once, you ain't going to fool me again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know the thing. Come on. Dude, between Biden and Bush. I can't imagine any country looking at American going, yeah, they're, they got their stuff together. All right. You know, the first Westerner to set foot in Mongolia was George Bush. Oh my God. <laughs> That's their introduction to the Western civilization is Iraqistan. <laughs> Jeb's <laughs> dumb brother, Jeb's dumb brother. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> 
And they're like, well, it's no, it's no, re- no question why Jengis had think, no problem I taking over the, the dumbasses. Look, look at him. This is their leader. This is the one they give with all the power. Wow. <laughs> wow. You guys are really, uh, really a force to be reckoned with, huh? I cannot think about that sober. Okay. If we're going to go down that road, I would need alcohol and I have none. So we're not going to go down. Well, I got road. plenty. But I think the main reason why some of our predictions turn out right and some of them don't. Yes, there's a million different variables, millions of different variables as to why. But there's also a million different variables that come into connection that people say is coincidence or conspiracy in things such as what you had mentioned earlier. I'm going to spill the beans a little bit of the information that you found out that the CDC was given power of authorization to not need any form of legal checks and balances from any of the three branches of government when and if, quote unquote, a coronavirus were to ever be spread in mass, that they essentially have free reign of power. And that was authorized in 2003. So a lot of coincidences that happen in life and more often than not, whether you want to consider it like the Hillary kill list or the Clinton kill list or Epstein or any of those things that we look at and go, hmm, isn't that a coincidence? There are a lot of things that we can say that it lines up for more than just a coincidence, but all these major events that have to happen actually happen. And because they're so major and because it's the potential for it to not to have happened that way that it did, people want to think that it's a coincidence. I think the reason why half of it works out and half of it doesn't is because of spiritual intervention or lack thereof. I think that when there is, I I believe that there is power in prayer and I believe that that is the most powerful thing that we can do on earth. And the reason why I think that is because it's doing two things. It's taking the element out of our hands and out of our control. And that's something that especially men don't want to do. We are here to fix. We fix, fight, feed, and breed. That's, that's really what we do. And when one of those four elements is taken out of our possession willingly, I mean, let's say for cancer, health, cancer, for example, you can't control how to get cancer out of your body. I mean, you can go to treatment, you can go to chemo, you can take the meds, you can do all that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get rid of it and you're going to survive. You cannot have full autonomous control over that. And when you come to that realization, that acceptance of it all and go through all the stages of of grief over it and finally release your need for control over it, then that is where true freedom comes into play. And you're able to enjoy what time you do have and take control over the life that you have left. In that same way, when you give over the responsibility of what is at your mind's fingertips to feel the need to control that you are focusing on, when you finally alleviate yourself of that, that is not only freeing to yourself, but it's also allowing the one who is in control full autonomous ability over it. And what I mean by that is, is like, let's say, for example, you have a car that's broken and you, and you know, I'm a mechanic and you say, Hey man, can you fix my car? And I'm like, sure, bring it over this weekend. And you're like, okay, the weekend comes and goes and you didn't come by. And I call you up and I'm like, Hey man, I thought you were coming by with your car. Yeah. I thought I could take a hand at it. I was, I was trying to fix it myself and I can't, I'll come by this next weekend if you're free. Yeah, for sure. Whenever, come on. Next weekend comes, you bring the car by and I tell you, all right, man. And I, let's just say I have my own shop 
and I'm telling you to park it in the shop and I'm going to put it up on the lift. And you say, no, 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 no. Don't put it on the lift. I need to drive it home tonight. Well, I don't know if I can fix it by then. I don't even know what's wrong with it yet. Yeah, but I, I need this done now. Okay, well, I'll do what I can and I'll do what I can on the floor. But when I get to a point where I need to have it jacked up and I tell you, hey, man, or let's say the evening comes quicker than where I'm at fixing the problem and you're like, okay, well, I'll come back later. Well, now I have to put everything back together just to get it in what running order it was just so you can drive off again and then hopefully limp the car back at a later point in time. And then let's say a month goes by and you blow the engine out and you get mad at me and saying, well, I brought it to you three times. And I said, yeah, but you never gave me a full opportunity to let me work on the thing. You never let me have enough time. I never even knew what was wrong with it. When you finally give over that, that is ailing you, that is frustrating you, that is bothering you, that is hurting you to not just have a void in your life now, whether it's your job and your job is what you've used to create your persona. Who are you? I'm a firefighter. Who are you? I'm a CEO of this company or whatever the case is. And your job is causing you so much angst that it's giving you ulcers. It's giving you potential, whatever, whatever it is, my kids, my family, whatever. When you finally let that go, you don't have a void in your life. That void, when you give it over in prayer, you then receive peace. And these things sound holistic and fruity or trippy and hippie and all that kind of stuff. But the reason it sounds that way is because not enough people genuinely do it. Christianity isn't something that you try on the weekend and put away like a Halloween costume come Monday. It's something that it becomes you. You become a part of it. You then have that with you. Look at our military service members. You think they all love the military? Absolutely not. You think they all thought it was candy and horseshoe gumdrops and unicorns and rainbows? Absolutely not. How many of those members of the military, former members of the military, veterans, wear some type of hat, have some type of tattoo, have some type of bumper sticker? Why do they do that? Well, there's some because they want to pose. Let's be honest. There's some that want to pose. Same with the fire industry. But then there's some... That even though as crappy as it was and as sucky as it was, it still held some of the best years of their life because of how sucky and crappy it was that they got through it. And that it's a constant reminder to them, like a brotherhood or a fraternal order that they can say and look back and go, you know what? If I can do that, I can do this. If I can do that, I can do anything. It's a constant reminder to themselves that they are stronger than what they once thought they were in the same way where Daniel had a dream where God showed him the, or Jacob, not Daniel, where Jacob had a dream and God showed him the ladder into heaven adorned with angels on either side. He had used a rock as his pillow that night. And it says that he erected the pillow, the, the stone into an upright position to forever be a reminder of God's goodness. Now, how many times, and I'm asking this as a Christian to other Christians now, not, not non-Christians. How many times do we ask God for something? I don't care what it is. Oh, please, God, let me pass that test. Please, God, don't let me get caught at work with that. Please, God, don't let my boss know I got, I came in late. Whatever it is, whatever it is, how many times do you ask God for something? And then you get it. And the very next thing out of your mouth is another asking for something else. How many stones do we erect? And I'm including myself in this question. How many stones do we erect in the name of God's honor for honoring his word to us and giving what it, we ask for? Do we ask for more than we thank him for? Now, how many times as parents would you continually give to your kid if they never said the word thank you? I have a four and five-year-old daughter. Every time I give them something, I remind them if they don't say it to say thank you. Most times 
before I physically let go of whatever it is I'm about to give them in their hand. I say, what do we say? Thank you, daddy. Okay. Cause I want to get that instilled in their mind to be grateful, to be thankful, <clears throat> to be humble. In that same way, if we stop saying, thank you, do we really have any right to be asking for anything else? So when you give something to God, now think about this relationship here. He wants all your garbage. He wants all your trash, all your problems, all your drama, all your, all your issues, all your baggage. And in return, he wants you to have peace. Why does he want that? Because he loves you so much that he would be willing to be your, your sounding wall, your complaint bucket to begin a relationship with you. You don't complain to people that you don't trust to keep what you're about to say between you and them. Well, you don't when you get older because you realize shit rolls downhill, not up. And if you think the person above you in your job or your career or whatever is about to hear you complain about what they're doing, you will keep your mouth shut real fast because you know, you'll probably affect your employment status. God wants to have a trust relationship with you. Do you want to watch you to give you that. the single greatest Let's connect all the dots together in your fucking lifetime. I'm about to tie all this shit together with a fantastic, fantastic little rant of mine. Fantas <laughs> I'm going to fucking connect everything. Okay. Frankly, you are going to be amazed. Okay. You are fake news. Listen, I don't appreciate any of that. Okay. That is slanderous. And you'll be hearing from my Jew lawyers in the morning. Okay. What? Now let's just hope my drunk ass can fucking keep my fucking argument in one place. So <laughs> the one time you're on fucking point with the soundboard, the one time is the time I'm trying to focus. Every other time you're <laughs> this time you're bop, 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 bop. Yep. fuck you. I'm firing them off. All right. So on, man, we're going to start with your biblical thing and then we're going to lead stepwise into the fucking slippery slope thing and what the 50 50 split is and then we're going to go into our position today watch uh, what i'm about to fucking do no eh. okay so here this is what we're going to do so in psychology it was it was discovered that okay so you can do this experiment at home if you're listening all right try to make the smallest movement you can all two of you with your dominant hand by itself. Okay. Try to make the smallest movement you can with it. Okay? okay. You can just try to move it forward or side, whatever. Try to move it. So try to move it to the other side of the screen. The smallest movement you like can. Like my finger or the whole hand at the wrist? Either or. Doesn't matter. Okay. So, okay. Now, put your left hand up, but your finger right up to it. Or you're, it, you're fucking being, you're being a contrarian. Okay? Okay. But that, yeah, that one. Okay, do that. Stage left. You can scientifically make a smaller move than you ever could by itself with that opposing force. Oh, you froze. No, you froze. I didn't freeze. And the record will show that. So you can think, okay, I'm going to move it to the, so my left, your right, whatever. I'm going to go, okay, move it the slightest amount I can with that. Okay. Okay. But if you put up okay. your hand. You. There you go. Okay. And then put. Here's my hand. Here's my finger, okay. my dominant hand. Okay. Put it against that. Mm -hmm. You can now scientifically move it a smaller degree. You have greater control over your small movements with that counter force. Okay. It's an oppositional thing. So both your left and right hemispheres of your brain are firing at the same time at this conflict. And because of that, you get unmatched precision. 
for yourself. You need that counteracting force okay. so that you can okay. make that. Okay. So biblically, okay. I, this is one of the things that I was struggling with um, for everything. Uh, I, every now and again, I go back to the Bible and I read it. I don't read it the way you read it, but I read it through the lens of, well, let me try to understand what the story philosophically or thematically is trying to convey you know and then so i always go back to the old testament since the new testament has really fucking lame stories so i go back to the old testament and a lot of those you'll see dichotomies you know so you got you know the garden of eden but in the garden of eden the serpent is there okay you got cain and abel who are the in living embodiment of a dichotomy okay why do those things exist in the fucking story why it doesn't make sense and the reason being is you need to have that oppositional force so you can do something that you wouldn't be able to do naturally by yourself, unopposed. So Adam and Eve are in the garden. They're doing their own thing. <laughs> Smoking reefer, doing whatever, you know, and uh, that's all well and good, but they can never become what they need to become. They can never take the next step and truly reach their potential unless they have an oppositional force that forces them to make those small moves since you have complete control when you have an oppositional uh, force against. So it. are you saying the, the temptation is the oppositional is force? The, and, the, and you know, in the Adam and Eve story, that's the yeah. oppositional force since they got their own thing and they can do whatever the fuck they want. But then the temptation of, well, except this. Okay. Okay. Well, they can't become what they need to be, you know, since God's plan in this story isn't the goal of it isn't written it's written that he made this thing or that they written it depending on what you know how how strict you want to be to the translations and all that um but they the this paradise is developed but it's not good enough they need to add that oppositional force since that oppositional force is the only thing that elevates you to the next level of being your ultimate self so in this, you know, in that story, they get, they deal with temptation and then they learn, they take from the tree of wisdom and then they learn what God knows. And then that's their next step. Would they have done that without the oppositional force? No, they wouldn't have done it. They've been happy, mindless little robots mulling around fucking all the time. Well, that's not the fucking point. The point is we're going to make you something. Of Eden, son. We're, we're going to make you something bigger than what you currently are. It doesn't make sense since you're like, well, you're already immortal. Like, how does that not is how is that not the pinnacle of what you can be? Well, there has to be something that forces you to focus and make those precise movements, just like your hand and your finger in opposition of one each other of one another can make you make such precise movements that it's un it's it's impossible with one hand alone, you know. So temptation is added into the Garden of Eden, knowing that that is going to elevate them in a way that they don't understand, that they don't, that isn't known. It's going to elevate them into a higher form of themselves. So you're Since saying now they understand things. Now they got to deal with other shit. They hadn't didn't have to deal with anything before. Well, what is a person that's in a plastic bubble their entire life? You know, that's essentially what they are. They're bubble kids is what they are. Well, they're fucking weak. They don't really know anything. And they're the kid that gets anything. They, they're not their full potential but you're making them in your image. You have to make them their full potential. Okay. 
So you need to make them do this. Okay, so they do this and then there's the fall and all that. Then you get Cain and Abel. And in the story, it looks like Abel is the pinnacle. And he is. And Cain is the, you know, weakened, angry, cynical, whatever. <clears throat> so he kills uh, Abel. <clears throat> you know, that's that oppositional force. Well, now we introduce a new thing that now elevates humanity. Since now Cain and Abel are the first two real humans, it now elevates them higher than they would before the humanity would be before. It now elevates them. Since now they know consequences. They now know, well, maybe jealousy and this like vanity and this, you know, uh, this undeserved hatred isn't a good thing. Maybe you shouldn't do that, you know, but if you were left alone to your own devices, you'd be able to progress somewhere. And this is foreshadowing people. You can progress somewhere that you don't want to go, that you shouldn't go without that oppositional force to teach you that lesson, right? <coughs> so why are in the slippery slope arguments, why are half of them right, half of them wrong? The half that are wrong reach opposition. They reach an oppositional force. And that oppositional force forces them to reevaluate what they're fucking doing. And they push and they go, well, we can make a smaller move here. And it makes them now more effective at movement, at moving. So they go, oh, I can't really do this. I can't really do that. So it collapses and it has to collapse. Now, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad, but it's necessary for it to elevate. All right. The ones that go all the way unchecked are the ones that don't have a fucking oppositional force. So they just go and they got no oppositional force and they just keep going and going and going and going and going and going into their logical conclusion, <laughs> you know? So let's take this, uh, this, this thing with the uh, CDC and uh, all their fucking glory. Can so, I say something real quick? Okay. Number one question. So are you saying the presence of opposition necessary to get into your full status of um, glory? Is that the temptation of sin? or the indulgence of sin? Both. Meaning, it has to be both. Why both? Since temptation isn't enough. You can be tempted to do something, but you're not going to learn the lesson until you do it. Since well, remember, case, sin means... Nobody would not be a drug. Then if that were the case, then nobody would not do drugs until they did do drugs at one point in their life. And that's what it is. People are tempted all the time. You know, you're tempted. Well, I'll do this and it'll make your day a little bit easier. A lot of people, ah, oh, it's okay. And they reach that oppositional force. There are a lot of people two that have never done drugs. Hmm? There, are a lot of there are a lot of people that have never done drugs. There are a lot of people that have never done any type of psychedelic, hallucinogenic, or even weed. There are a lot of people that haven't even smoked yeah, exactly. one. But now take a look at the people that you know or that you know through whatever, internet or history books or whatever. The people that always seem to have the answers that people look up to and hold them in high esteem. What is their common thread is that they always fall. We're looking like CEOs, CEOs, <clears throat> billionaires, millionaires, whatever. They will always tell you the key to their success was failing over and over and over and over. That they always go, fail. It's that not that they were tempted to fail. That goes back to your authoritarian model of what's your credentials. How do you know this? You need that though. So like, look, look at the like average guy. Okay. Let's say this average guy listens to his doctor. He listens to the authority. Okay. Since that's what he's told to do. And there, there's no force stopping that to that point. So he listens to him. Okay. 
And this guy leads him down a road that ends up with him losing a leg. Okay. Now mm-hmm. he's met an oppositional force with that mindset. Since before that point, he's blindly going along with the narrative. He's blindly okay. going along with emotion since that's what you're doing. That's what the good people in the garden of Eden do. They blindly go along. They're blind to the real world. They're blind to reality. They're blind to the truth. They're blind to it. And it's okay since they're told what to do. And it's, that's fine. We're told what to do. We're told what to do. It isn't until they make that first fucking mistake where they, they got tempted. They, you know, the temptation is there. Listen to the doctor. He's the one that knows. He's the one, the authority figure is the one that knows that's the, that's their job. Is they're the ones that know, right? That's the temptation of, okay, well, obviously this has to be the right way because like you said, it's harder to be completely in your own. It's, it's hard to be the master of your own life entirely from stem to stern, nut to bolts, head to toe. It's hard, you know, start to finish a to Z, whatever you want to say. It's, it's impossibly hard to be the master of your entire life, of every aspect of it. To a degree, there's always a, a, a level of being a product of your environment. Sure. Exactly. So exactly. But so you're, and that's even, even to that point, you can, people know that they can overcome their environment. You can mm-hmm. overcome a lot of things, but that's yeah, it's your environment easier to go through this. It's easy to go through the motions. Outcome, it's easier. Right. Right. So <clears throat> you go along with this, this, thought these feelings i'm gonna go along it's easier to do that. i'm gonna do it it's what it, come on man we're gonna do our thing and that's moving along without a oppositional force and because you don't got an oppositional force you're not gonna be in whatever aspect of your life you're not gonna be as precise you're not gonna be as accurate you're not gonna be as diligent you're not gonna be as effective you're not gonna be as successful whatever adjectives you want to use it's not going to happen unless there's that oppositional force that pushes back on you. So, and in, 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 you know, in the example of, well, let's do this. I'll, I'll use this as an example. I turn from Mike to take a drink professional and a smoke. Let me give you an example of my um, former landlords that I had years ago. So they were really good people, really, really good people, but they didn't know Dick about house repair, about anything. They didn't know anything about anything as it relates to that they're really smart people but as typical smart people go they don't know anything fucking practical so we had a hole in the house we were renting they had a a pipe bust and the plumber cut this huge fucking hole in the ceiling to find the pipe and fix it and then he left it there he left it up there so what they did was they were you know they were talking and they didn't even talk to me they didn't even ask well what can you do what can you not do whatever that and i'm not gonna go into that route and complicate our contract any further than it needs to be complicated. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So they hire a guy who is a handyman. He has a business. He's insured. He's bonded. You know, I I doubt that he was, but I'm sure he said that. And well, that's the credential. He knows what he's doing. He knows how to fix it. And I sat there and watched this man for two hours, struggle to put in a fucking drywall patch, struggle with every fiber of his being. And he mangled that bitch. He mangled it. And I, I, I called up my landlady and I was like, look, this guy doesn't know his ass from a hole in the ground. He doesn't know dick. He is robbing you of money and he's using your ignorance against you. Let me do it. I can do it. Let me do it. I'll fix it. And I fixed it. And I sent them pictures and said, look, it doesn't look as good as I want it to look, but I am working with a broken product and this is all it is. 
Does it meet your status? You know, are you happy with it? Oh, it's fantastic. That was their oppositional force. Up until that point, they just trusted. Well, the guy says he can fix it. So he obviously must. He has the right, you know, things that behind his name, he has the right title. Obviously, he knows what he's fucking doing. My tenant is a guy that talks on the fucking internet. <laughs> he doesn't know anything. Why should he know anything? He's a young guy with a family, a new family. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. All right, I'm not even going to ask him, okay? Then that comes up and they get screwed out of fucking money. And then that, that guy proceeded to try to rob the house about a week later. <clears throat> and that's when I ran down the stairs in a stormtrooper onesie with my fucking gat. And I was walking down, you motherfuckers going to get shot today. And I, want, I really wanted that to be the last thing someone sees is a grown fucking man in a stormtrooper onesie with a fucking SIG pointed at their fucking head. <clears throat> but nice. I digress. And I was like, this guy tried to fucking rob you. He was casing joints is what he was doing. And ever since that point, after that, then they started asking me when there was something wrong or whatever. Then they didn't right. trust anybody after that. They're like, I don't trust this building inspector just because he's a building inspector. I don't trust this guy. Why should I trust their credentials in sure. this little nucleus? Sure. Why sure. should I trust them? Since that doesn't mean anything. I'm going to ask Andy and see what he has to say first. I'm going to see what he has to say. And I'm like, dude, look, this whole shit is fucked. All right. If I was you, I'd sell the fucking house. All right. The foundation's cracked. This whole thing is fucked. It's fucked, man. And they went noted. You know, that's that oppositional force. When you're allowed to progress unopposed, you will end up in a place that you normally wouldn't do it if you were being rational. You would normally wouldn't get there since nothing is challenging. And that's another thing in psychology. Again, for the listeners that don't, I spent a lot of time in college. <laughs> I spent a lot of time listening to people and reading books. One of the things that perpetuates mental illness, especially, uh, and it's not really mental illness, I'll say mental dysfunction, is that you are allowed to live in your diluted, odd world unopposed, since everyone's too polite and everyone's, oh, well, they're living their truth, they're doing their thing. And you go down this fucking road. And then at the end, so you'll start doing something innocuous one year, five years down the road, you are fucking nuttier than squirrel shit at the end of it. Since nothing has stopped you, nothing, there's no opposing force to make you go, this is how far I'm actually moving. This is how far this is, this is how much force I'm actually applying. This is how much is, this is what's actually fucking happening, you know? And so that was one of the things that I learned really quickly when I was learning, um, like family psychology, family therapy, and all that shit. I did go, I was accepted at one point to be a, a clinical psychologist uh, in a clinical psychology program. Uh, that's a running theme in my education. I get accepted to something and I don't finish it since I get bored. Um, but that was one of the things they said is like, well, when you're in a marriage or you're in a relationship, it doesn't have to be a marriage. It can be a friendship or whatever. Your responsibility then is to be that opposing force. If you see someone doing something, and they're going off and you know it's off, your job is to stand up and be their opposing force and push back. Don't go any farther. Don't go any farther down this road. So like we go back to Adam and Eve, you know, they, they take from the tree of wisdom. Okay. At that point, um, they don't the fucking disobey again. They the learn, oh, knowledge. maybe I shouldn't have fucking done that. Maybe there was a reason I shouldn't have done that. Maybe that wasn't a good idea, but they wouldn't have known that had that oppositional force, had the temptation not been there and their follow through not happened. They wouldn't have learned that. Oh, maybe See, I shouldn't do that. That's, that's where 
I think our understandings come from a different root that lead to different plants. <clears throat> the idea of needing an oppositional force to get to the to your full potential that I can get behind. The idea of needing to the, the the idea of both temptation and committing sin are one and the same. I don't agree with for multitude of reasons. One, an obvious. I can just name the obvious that I'm pretty sure any other Christian would say as well. Jesus was tempted, but he never sinned. God himself, therefore, if you are a, a believer in the Trinity, which is, in my opinion, a core element of understanding who God is, three in one, that God, through the entity of Jesus, who is not created at a specific time, date, or place, he always was, just as God was when he said, I am the word and the word always has been. Therefore, when Jesus was born here on earth, that is not how old Jesus is. Jesus always has been. That was just when the world was introduced to Jesus in humanity's form. Therefore, the human form of Jesus was tempted. Ergo, God understands temptation. That's how God has a one-on-one -on -one relationship with us, that he understands temptation. He understands pain. He understands having things taken away from him like his one and only son. He but understands here's the thing. Here's the, like here's the rub. Here's the rub. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject right now. I will go. In, 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 as far as the story is concerned, I'm not about to go and be so bold as to try to project my analysis on something unknowable and divine. I'm not about to do that. But I'm saying as far as the story is written, up until the story of Jesus, God doesn't understand what he's doing. He doesn't understand it fully. He gets it on paper. He gets it. And he knows that this has to and he knows he has to go through the motion. And if you look at the Old Testament, God is a cruel God is vindictive. God is, he's a power hungry child, essentially. I'm going to do, you got to listen to me. But listen, here's the important thing. Then the Jesus aspect comes in. So God has to deal with this shit that he made. He has to deal with it since this is how it has to be. You know, he knows that the temptation is going to be out there. He knows not to listen to it. He knows that it's, that it's an illusion. He knows all that since he's all knowing and all powerful, but he has to experience the temptation and see, well, how strong is it? Well, what is it really like for somebody who isn't me to deal with this? How hard it, how that, hard is, and even in the story, even in the story of Jesus, Jesus does succumb to his own humanity at certain point. The biggest uh, example of that is him, you know, tossing over the tables at the temple. You know, he's mad at it. He's tempted to do that since it's obviously wrong. Now, listen, follow my, follow my train of thought. It's obviously okay. wrong. He knows it's wrong. He knows it's temptation since, you know, he's an extension of the divine. He knows that this is what, you know, this is essentially what God and Jesus are the same in the story. They're one and the same knows I created this. I know that. And up to that point, he's able to really just kind of handle all temptation. Well, he's like, oh, that's okay. It's okay. It's a, what, you know, you're not going to get one over on me. It's fine. You know, I understand this, but I'm learning. I'm learning this shit. I'm learning about how strong his forces are. Okay. And then he gets to the temple when he's where he know what he knows the people there know better. And he knows that. And he knows it since he told them that and he's watched them do this and he knows they know better and they're doing it in defiance anyway. So now his temptation is, well, what do you do about it? Do you just walk away and go, oh, listen, it, this is the story could uh, bifurcate to that point. 
since it could have been a parable. He's like, and this is what happens. They're going to go down this road and you know, watch what happens to them. They're going to devolve into, you know, debauchery and greed and they're going to, you know, and they're going to end up running the world economic forum. And this is what's going to happen. Nice. But uh, see how I slipped that in there. Um, I'm really a master of the, of the yarn, but in that moment, he is unable to control his anger essentially. Now he, he could go farther. He could go and really start like slitting throats and shit, snapping necks and all that. John wick, that bitch, he could do that, but instead he just kind of gets overwhelmed and he starts flipping shit and he starts whipping people and shit. Like what the fuck do you think you're doing type shit? But after that point, he never does it again. He never loses his emotions again in the story. He never does it again. That's the only one where he really loses his shit is that when he is encountered with people that he knows know better and he knows they know better and he knows they know what he said to do. And he's completely engulfed in his humanity. And at that point, he's like, All right, he goes back to his old self in that one story of like, I'm going to flood the world. I'm going to do this. I don't like the. He goes back to that old self one time and at the end, and it's not written, but he never does it again. So he meets the oppositional force that he created and goes, oh, I understand now what that means. Like, this is a strong fucking thing I made. I'm not going to do this again. And from that point, and that's what I go with in the story, why the God of the New Testament forgives and the God of the Old Testament doesn't. So mm. the God of the New Testament has succumbed to it once succumbed to his own devices one time in a really minor way, but still for something omnipotent, something grandiose, something un, beyond understanding and to succumb to something so mind. petty, really, in a moment to succumb to something so petty. Since up and to that point, he's talking, he's, he's, a, he's a scholar and whatever, like anybody else, that one point he becomes a person for a split second and he forgets it. But now he's not a god. Now he can't just snap his fingers and thanus it all away. Now he's stuck with the consequences of that. Oh, maybe I shouldn't be so hard after this point. Maybe there's more to that. Maybe I didn't under fully grasp the, and, and how, and if you just take it from a story standpoint, how could something all powerful, all knowing without a beginning, without an end ever understand fully what it's like to be immortal. It's impossible. So you have to become one. Okay. And then that's the first step when he does that. And then that le and then, you know, then it progresses to the crucifixion story after that. And then after that, he ascends <laughs> to back to his old form, essentially, you know, so but he has to experience that fault, that temptation, and then sinning since Jesus is without sin. You know, Jesus is without sin, but that one thing, and people wouldn't even call it a sin. It's like, well, it's justified, you know, blah, 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 for an almighty, all-knowing entity that doesn't begin, doesn't end. That is a huge sin that you succumb to a mortal emotion in the moment, in the heat of the moment, you succumb to it. And then after that point, I'm forgiving. Everyone gets a second chance. Everybody is redeemable. It's okay. As long as you mean it, as long as you understand what I said, and understand what happened and you understand what you did and why it's wrong. I'm okay. You know, okay. I'll always forgive you. I love you from that point, from that point on, it's a different God at that point on it's different, but that's the one sin that God makes is that one sin in human form. He makes that one error 
one time. And it's not even a big fucking error. You know, he could have started a war. <laughs> you know, he could have turned the Romans onto the Israelites and had them all fucking genocided. You know, six million Jews dead by Roman, uh, by Romans, you know. Nice. Uh, see, again, I slipped another one in there. I so I'm going to need about 10 minutes to rebuttal. And I want to hit every point. You know, God, but God that, that's, that's the way I look at it is that. Okay. You need that oppositional force. And God knew he need, And even, even if you don't buy that, even if you don't buy the sin bit, everything I just said, the fact is God is an immortal entity. He needed to become a mortal entity so he could progress. He had to be something he wasn't and encounter something, an oppositional force. And that, in this instance, morality, you know, more not morality, mortality, so that he could be more. He could be the savior up until that point. You know, he had to become the savior. How do you do that? Well, you have to be mortal and you have to understand what it's like to live a life and die, you know, and not an easy death. You don't get to sit there and, well, I'm, I'm 95 years old. Oh, you don't get to do that shit. No, you get to die in a Roman, I'm going to make an example out of you way of dying. Very inhumane, very, a very torturous death. You have to die that way. And then you'll understand and then you can become the savior. You know, anyway, I'll let you continue. Okay. I appreciate, I appreciate everything you said because it does give a lot of, a lot of uh, thought and that's what I enjoy. Again, I don't pretend to know everything, nor do I even want to, to have that weight would be insurmountable. I stay up at night wondering things enough as it is, but what I have peace on and what I understand thus far from my relationship and my reading is <clears throat> now I'm going to ask some rhetorical questions. You don't have to answer them right away. They're more for going along as an analogy. The first point of the act of sin being equal to the temptation of sin is refutable on the basis that free will was given. So if I tempt you, I cannot make you do something, but I can tempt you to do it. So just on the premise of me tempting you to do it, therefore I won in tainting you or changing you or- I'm gonna push back out. right there since I think I, I didn't clarify that point as well as I could. Temptation does not equal the actual sin. Let me point, the, point out my reason why that is. Temptation, like anyone can be tempted to do something, but temptation doesn't foster growth. Necess it, it, it might foster a slight amount, but it's not going to give you the same amount that you're going to get when you fuck up. Right. You know, For the same and, reason. And, that, and, and I, 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 do, I do agree with your pushback, though. They're not the same thing. They're not. Since you can't be thrown in jail for thinking about murdering somebody. Or you you're only thrown in jail for, jail for you doing drugs. Right. Exactly. Now, so on that premise, we do agree that there was a necessity for a pushback there for a further growth. Now, at the point of committing sin, not being tempted with, but the commission of sin, that was not the moving up a phase or leveling up, if you will. Of humanity that was the degradation of humanity thus being cast out of the garden of eden the encompassing understanding of being naked the encompassing understanding of mortality of death 
of the need of, of killing and things of that nature. That's why God gave them animal skins to wear, which killed an animal. Another position in the Bible where every time there was a sin that was committed for there to be an act of somewhat of forgiveness in the Old Testament and one time in the New where <clears throat> there was a level of forgiveness, a blood sacrifice had to be made similar to uh, whether it be goats, rams, sheep, whatever it was. And it couldn't just be your sickly animals that you were going to kill anyway. It had to be your first, your first percent, your first 10, um, your best. Now, going from that point where we can agree that there is a need for opposition, there is no need to then say, in order for us to understand what righteousness is, we have to understand depravity. So in order for me to be grateful for my children, I need to go and kill someone else's child to understand how to truly love my own. That is uh, a falsity in the idea of truly what trying I, what to I'll say with something. that. What I'll say with that is that I agree. You don't need that's theory of mind. You know, that's a you, you but you have to be exposed to the depravity and see what happens for you. And, you know, if we're talking about this in a biblical context, you need to, see, you know, Adam and Eve aren't humans. They're not in the story. They're not people. They're not like you and me. They're not humans. They're something else. You know, Cain and Abel are humans, but Adam and Eve aren't. They become humans, but they are not initially humans. They're something else entirely. Okay. So there's that one point. But what you, if we if we want to if we want to talk about this biblically, Adam and Eve, you know, fall from this other entity into humanity because they didn't listen and because they weren't observant. And that's the big that's the and so what happens and Cain and Abel it's the same kind it's that it's the the repeat of that. But now with dire consequences, immediately dire consequences. You know, you killed your brother. See, There's I don't no going back, were you know, you don't get a mulligan entities. with that. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's done. You know, I don't, I don't believe that they were separate entities. I believe that they were human, but mm -mm. humanity at that story, period not had people. different, um, not capabilities, but different, um, abilities. No, they're um, not in, in, as it starts in Genesis, they are not humans. Can you they're show me where people. they're not people? Can you show me where I can, if you just read the fucking story, they're not people. At Cain and Abel, then they're birthed. That's when they become people. You need to be birthed to be a human. All people are birthed. Adam and Eve aren't birthed. They're the created. reason why the reason why human humanity is put in a position. Yeah, where but I get I get that. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stave that off. But, but I'm, all I'm trying to say is, and to prove my point, Adam and Eve start off as not humans. They're something else. They're not God. They're not humans. There's something in between. They're this kind of weird organism entity thing. Since they're so was, mortal, was they the don't first have computer, any wants or needs, and no human can say that. the computer that IBM created, though, literally took an entire airplane hangar to house for kilobits of space. Was it not a computer? It's not what we know today of a computer. No, it is still a computer. Okay. Just because it changes its shape doesn't mean it's not a computer. But okay. You can't call an abacus a computer, at least in the modern sense. They both count, but that doesn't mean they're computers. You know, a lot of things can count. A chimpanzee can count. That doesn't make it a fucking IBM supercomputer. Okay. It can count, but that doesn't make it 
the act of counting doesn't make something a computer. I mean, I guess strictly definitionally, that's what a computer does. It computes, but in the sense of having the super processing, whatever, it doesn't have that. Adam and Eve, but by overall makeup, they had all of the properties of a human, including reproductive properties. They do not have any of the properties of humans to start after they take from the tree of wisdom, then they are turned into humans at that point. Because nothing about Adam and Eve is similar to humans at all. Maybe in shape, but I think that's projection. You know, we have this projection. We project because it's a story. You know, what do they actually look like? We don't know what they fucking, it's a story. But we don't know what they initially, we know what, we know what Cain and Abel look like because they're people. And we can imagine that and we can see that. The words but, of, of what were used in Hebrew to describe Cain and Abel are the exact same words that were used to describe no, they're not. other humans. Other humans, sure. Not Adam and Eve. They're not them. Initially, they're not the same because God creates them de novo himself. They're, it's kind of like, it's not really a really good analogy, but it's kind of similar to saying Jesus is a human in all ways. In shape, maybe. Jesus is a human, but in every other way, Jesus isn't a human. You know, it's not the same thing. Adam and Eve become humans and that's their fall. You have to fall to become a human. So what did you fall from? Something that wasn't human to begin with. Okay. And that, I mean, it's, it's, it's really negligible to the whole argument, honestly. But what my argument is, is that you need to have that the, if we're going to, if we're going to follow the biblical framework, the fall of Adam and Eve into humanity from their higher status into humanity taught them you need to watch and you need to listen. Even, even if you don't see something as bad, if it's told that it's bad and you can see that it has a bad outcome, you don't need to fucking do it. You can see what's going to happen, you know? So to your example, so you don't need to do or... something depraved to a kid to know that it's bad. And even then, you wouldn't know that it's bad, I'd argue. Since you're not the kid, you know, you're not the kid. That's, that's essentially the differentiation that I have between where in the Bible, it says of wisdom and knowledge. And you and I have talked about that before where knowledge would basically be like science. I have uh, a thesis. I have a prediction. I have now moved on to the process of elimination through scientific research. And then I have uh, as a uh, uh, conclusion of that data to create an opinion. So in a dumbed down sense, mom says, don't touch the hot plate. It's hot. Okay. Well, is it really? Because it doesn't, it's not glowing red right now. So I'm going to touch it and see if it is. Oh, it is hot. It burned my hand. I have the scar now to prove it. I can assume that now I don't have to know. I don't have to see a red or yellow, orange glow to, to know that it's hot. If someone tells me it's hot, if I see the little knob turn even just a little bit, it's probably hot. Wisdom says, okay, mom said not to touch it because it's hot. So it's probably hot. Exactly. But so here's my point. You just, you just proved my point. Okay. You wouldn't know that wisdom has a higher value to your life than knowledge had you not put your hand on the hot plate. Had but you not sinned, and again, I and all I want to say about the word sin, and I'm, I'm to understand the weight of value of wisdom. No, but you won't have that value if you don't understand the value of it to begin with. You know, so like everybody, mm-hmm. when they're a kid, 
put something in a fucking light socket since it's so pretty and it's so small. Everyone fucking put something in a light. I put tweezers in a light socket and blew the fucking fuse in my house. Like, and I probably leads to, and I touched a fucking live cattle fence once. uh, And that probably led, you know, slippery slope down to me being a talking head on the internet. But um, you don't understand the value of someone telling you, and this leads to another bunch of problems, but it doesn't, you don't understand. Well, maybe, maybe they're telling me not to do this for another reason. Maybe I don't need to do it to understand that it's going to fuck me over, you know, but, and everybody's, and you have millions of examples in your own life. Everybody does in their own life where this is true. Even if you know it's that wisdom supersedes knowledge, you will not as a human learn anything without fucking up first. And it's just a matter of making your fuck up smaller and smaller and smaller to reinforce wisdom over knowledge, you know? So like, for example, I, 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 and I think, you know, when, when people bring up the kids into arguments a lot and I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to throw shade or nothing, but I think it's a really good point um, for arguments in various situations since like, do you have to do something to a kid to learn that it's a bad thing to do it? Do you have to watch it? Do you have to, you know, is that fucking necessary? It's necessary that it has to be done at least once. And everyone has to see what happens afterwards. That's necessary. That is a necessary thing that has to happen. But like I said, for you to, to, for you to put wisdom above knowledge, you have to have a series of fuck-ups. And your whole goal in life is to make those fuck-ups smaller and smaller and smaller and less impactful and less impactful and less impactful so you can recover quicker. So as an adult, adult 75-year-old as you are, you wouldn't, you don't need to fuck up, you know, to, to do something debased and to do something abhorrent to a child to know that it's a bad thing. Since when you were younger, you fucked up with somebody who was weaker than you and saw how that ended up for you. You know, you saw how that fucking went. And then you're intelligent enough to extrapolate that and go, well, when I was 10 and I, fu- and I fucking hit this seven-year-old in the face with a pipe because he looked at me sideways and I was bigger than him and I figured I might as well do it. And then all this other shit fucking went down after I did that. Okay. Well, if that happened when I was 10 and I was and, uh, against a seven-year-old, how much more drastic would it be as a 75-year-old senator, as you are, been in the Senate 155 years, how much more drastic would that be for you to do that to a seven-year-old now? And you know this, and your brain is able to do this shit. And like spiritually, if you want to go that route, philosophically, you know what fucking happens since you have enough data points in your own life to know how this shit progresses and how it, how it, um, how it can grow, how it can be, um, what's the word, how it can be, um, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm losing the word, but like, if you do something at one level down here and the effect is like that. And then you do something at a higher level and it's orders of magnitude larger, you know, you know enough times that that's true and that's what's going to happen. So you don't need to do it later in life since you've already fucked up earlier, but you needed to fuck up earlier for you to learn. So I'm still not backing down that the sin is what makes you progress. The temptation 
the only reason Tim, we're even talking about temptation as a factor is because we're both old enough and wise enough to realize what temptation is. But at a point in both of our lives, we didn't even know what it was. You just act on it since why the fuck not? You know, it doesn't matter if you're in high school and you're finger blasting some chick and she says no and you keep going. It doesn't fucking matter if that's what it was. You know, it doesn't matter if it's that or if it's you, you put a hot, your hand on a hot plate. It doesn't fucking matter. At some point in your life, you had you didn't know what temptation was. You didn't know what you were seeing was temptation. So you just followed through. You didn't have that oppositional force pushing against you. You didn't have it. And because you didn't have that oppositional force, you weren't able to grow. You weren't able to evolve into your, you know, your level two Pokemon self. You weren't able to become something more than you are at that moment since you didn't fuck up down here. So you don't have to become a heroin addict to know that that's a bad idea. If, you know, you started smoking when you were 16, <laughs> you know, and you saw like, well, you know, eh, I, I, I was a real, I was able to run all the time. I started smoking all the fucking time and then I couldn't run no more. And then all this other shit happened. So, and that's a small fuck up in comparison. And you go, well, if that's a small fuck up, I ain't about to get fucking involved with, I ain't about to be in the train spotting sequel. You know, I know that that's going to, that's probably, and you have to have the wisdom to be able to correlate those two and see that it's not even a correlation. It's like an extrapolation. This is an extension. You know, this is what's going to fucking happen. But until you have that basal knowledge, that basal fuck up, you are not going to progress. It's impossible for you to progress. You know, it's impossible. You can't do it. <coughs> Without Cain murdering Abel, you humanity wouldn't have known murder is wrong. I don't believe you can't that. get it. You can't get it. Since Adam and Eve didn't murder each other, you know, all Adam learned <coughs> is that don't trust wrong. no bitches. Okay. All he learned is what future's been saying. Trust the check. Don't trust no bitches. Okay. He learned that lesson. He didn't learn the murder lesson, but Cain did. He learned that fucking lesson real fucking good. He learned that lesson real good. If you've never, if you've never seen or, per, or committed murder yourself firsthand, you don't know it's wrong. What I'm going to say is this. You've seen what happened. So like I told you, it has to happen at least once. And you have to have the wisdom of, of enough, you have to have enough fuck ups under your belt to learn to observe outwards to recognize temptation, right? So if you, and, and this is true in a lot of parts of the world with a lot of fucking people, they either lack that, the wisdom or they have some mental deficiency or something where they don't have that. And it doesn't dawn on them that it's wrong to do that. And everyone has done this to an animal at some fucking point. It doesn't matter if it's an ant or it doesn't matter if it's a dog. It doesn't matter what the fuck it is, but you end up killing it. You end up torturing it. You end up doing something to it simply due to the fact that you were able to do so. And if you're a normal functioning human being, you end up taking a step back after a point and you go, that was pretty fucked up. <laughs> and then you extrapolate it, you know, and you've seen enough people get killed and you've seen enough and you see how that goes down. Right. And you go, this isn't right. This is going to be, and then there's, you know, I can go into this scientifically and say that, well, there's a basal biological ethic, but I'm not going to go down that road, but you know, <clears throat> keeping this, whatever you, it has to happen at least to somebody. And you have to fuck up enough to at least recognize, to watch people that fuck up and be able to extrapolate 
for that to mean anything to you. Since there are millions, and I'm not exaggerating, and you know this and I know this, millions of fucking people out there every day who will murder somebody for no fucking reason since they haven't had any pushback. Take gangbangers in Chicago. Take anybody. Take fucking the president of the United States dropping fucking bombs on Somalis, killing them by the hundreds, whatever, murdering people in mass. Take Stalin. <laughs> One death is a fucking tragedy. A million is a statistic, you know? Without a, without a counter pressure, you're going to progress. And it just depends on if that counter pressure can be, you know, I, you know, I did whatever I, you know, I knew a guy at one point that lit cats on fire for shits and giggles. Okay. Um, and, you know, there's that counter pressure and then you get people and that guy did it for years because no one told him it was wrong. No one said it was wrong. No one said whatever. And then at some point in his life, someone's like, dude, you're going to go fucking to jail for this shit. And this shit is depraved and it's immoral and it's cruel. Why are you doing it? And then there's that counter pressure. Oh, maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe he lost some friends, maybe whatever, maybe whatever. And then me being a semi, you know, intelligent and wise human being, here's that story, laughs about it really inappropriately for a really inappropriate long a period of time but then goes, you know, that's really fucked up. You know, you shouldn't do that since you got enough fuck ups in your life that allow you to realize, well, maybe this, maybe I should, this is some wisdom to this, but point still being the sin is what makes you better. It always has been, always will be. The sin is what makes you better. Now, just because I, I, I do, and I'm not trying to derail the conversation. You can go back to it. I have no problem doing it. I just want to, uh, I just want to flex my, uh, my uh, aforementioned uh, glorious tie into everything. So we tied in the Bible, we tied in uh, the slippery slope thing and where we're at now, you know? What happens when you have depravity and not even depravity, I don't like saying that, you know, in certain situations, but um, using the previous example we used with like gay marriage. Okay, you have these actors who are doing something, okay? And now they got pushback that says this is this isn't the right way to do your movement but they haven't got any pushback to say what your movement what your ultimate goal is is wrong you know okay so they they, they reestablish they re recalculate blah, 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 breaking the conditioning doing all that shit you know they they do that and then they succeed they win but no one has told them nothing has stopped in their way there's no opposing force that says that your ultimate goal is fucked so then and then society lets them run with it. And the next thing you know, we are having to have legitimate conversations in 2021 about why fucking children, not 17-year-olds, not 16-year-olds, seven-year-olds, five-year-olds, toddlers, infants, fucking the most depraved shit, 10-year-olds, most depraved shit. Why that's not okay in society? Since nothing up until that point has pushed back on that ultimate game of that ultimate aim of theirs. And once they get that pushback, enough of them are going, well, maybe it's fucked up. Maybe, eh, maybe it's fucked up, you know, but until you fuck it up until something happens and you can see it fucking happen in front of your eyes, um, it's not going to do anything. So there you go. There's my glorious tie in to everything. And now you can go, I'll let you talk uninterrupted for 10 minutes. No, I don't want to know. I'm just kidding. So I looked up a couple of things. I'll get to that in a second. That's kind of like my little note to say that we need to see the depravity of humanity in different ways to understand what it is to have a full under 
comprehension of it being bad or in a reverse mathematical deduction good. Is this good or bad? Well, let me do it. Let me find out. <clears throat> that says that all of humanity's trials and problems will be on an ever-ending ever loop cycle. Now, that true as it may be, is that because we as humans forget that these things are bad? I mean, when we look at history, hold on. Nice mule log. I'm going to be like Maxine Waters and every Democrat. I'm going to give time back. Give my time back. When we look back in history, every society has dealt with homosexuality and eventually uh, pedophilia. Ironically, or unironically, when the, when the society infrastructure uh, does deal with these things on a cultural level of appropriate or inappropriate, that's generally right before they collapse. That being said, so do we not know any more about humanity and cultural interaction with each other than we did during the Roman era, even with all of the advances in technology and things of that nature? Now, let me skip all the way back to the beginning. Sin and temptation, in my understanding, by definition of each, are different. I do believe in the Trinity. I believe that Jesus always has been with God. I don't believe that God made any mistake. If he did, he wouldn't be, by definition, um, all righteous. And if there was ever anything that he did that was a mistake, then he wouldn't be omnipotent or all-powerful. Because holding all power means you don't do something that you then would want to take back because if you could, you'd have the power, right? How many times do we think, man, I wish I did that differently. Playing armchair quarterback on Sunday is easy on a Friday's game. So when you look back on a situation, if you don't have the power to change it, then you're not all powerful. Furthermore, when God said, this is my son, that is exactly what he was saying, that this is a piece of me. This is an entity of me that is now taking on humanity. The fall of humanity happened at not the point of temptation, which I appreciate your your point of view and your argumentation on this, because there's been a lot of Christians that I've known myself for a long period of time that have dealt with God. Why did you even create that tree of knowledge? Why, why would you even do that? And there have been periods even now where I've been trying to explain the peace that I have over why it was created. I never had the right words to describe it. And it was sitting right in front of my face this whole time because that opposing or oppositional force is necessary for growth. And that is 100% true. I agree with that wholeheartedly. The idea that we then need to indulge or divulge ourselves into sin to then have a clear defining understanding of what sin is, I don't agree with. Because that's saying either one of two things. Either one, that God's word is not enough for me to understand the ins and outs of right and wrong that he left something out, that there's something not described as to what I should or should not do. Does it talk about crack cocaine, heroin in the Bible? No. What does it say about specific things like drug abuse or alcohol abuse? The ideas of the concepts of a person who is in addiction, it talks about clearly. And that if a man is so far into his troubles that he cannot see the light of God, it even says, let him have his alcohol. Because if you're not going to have God be your God, and you'd rather have a demigod or a 
quasi-God of some type of idolatrical, fictional creature, entity, or being, or substance, then by all means, God loves you and I enough that he wants to not only be our God, but be our father in relationship, but loves you enough that if you so choose to have or create something else to be your God, he'll let you have that for all eternity. He'll let you be with whatever you create as your God forever and ever. Now, when in the gener- in the in the origin of man, in Hebrew, I wrote out in the chat in Hebrew what it says man is, as well as what Adam is. Adam, and I only took Hebrew once, um, one, one, one class of Hebrew. I only took one or two classes of Greek. I didn't take a whole lot. So by no means am I any way, shape, or form, any way, uh, form of official in this. But from my understanding, not only of the text, but the context, is that man is by definition what Adam was referred to. It's given a different um, spelling for the identification of that specific man. Now, but when later on in, in context, when it is speaking of man, you can enter uh, change the word of man and Adam to a degree, okay, to a degree. Hebrew, you don't have a whole lot of room for any changes. I mean, when the original context of the Bible was uh, transposed into copies, only rabbis were allowed to read the word of God and say the word of God after two hour, two or four hours of prayer. Anytime they wrote the word God, Yahweh, onto any documentation, they prayed two hours before, two hours after, <clears throat> washed their hands seven times before, seven times after. And they would compare their text that they hand translated because there were there's no copy from what they transposed from. And if it was off by any mark, tittler, or, or, or measure, meaning like a comma or a period, if any of it was off by any stretch, they would burn that document and pray for seven hours in forgiveness because they didn't want to be accused or uh, guilty of adding or subtracting from the word of God. Now, furthermore, and I wish we had that same um, literal understanding and, and, and habitual practice today in the way that we translate God's word, Every other year, it's version of the Bible for our mush brains to comprehend. I mean, in 18, what was it? 1890, 18 something, 1876, 1832, whatever it was, the uh, All-American Hymnal and uh, King James Bible were a third grade's educational reading material. Now, today, people will find the NIV too hard to understand. So anyway, point is moving forward where the idea of requiring sin or the understanding of sin to be something that is of uh, personal meaning generational lesson that must be learned to a large degree i agree with because if that weren't the case just because my mother was a christian ergo i'm a christian because my mother never drank alcohol ergo i will not drink alcohol so on and so forth the bible does clearly say that the sins of the father will be known for four generations that also says the blessings of a father will be known for a thousand. Now, what does that mean? For a personal context and my own understanding, I never knew my father. I never saw him, never shook his hand, never even heard his voice. He's already dead. But I do know that I've had a problem with alcohol in my life. Come to find out my father had a problem with alcohol. Come to find out his father had a problem with alcohol. Come out to find out his father had a problem with alcohol. Dying and fighting and bar fights and fist fights and all that kind of stuff runs rampant in my father's genealogical aspect of what makes me me now 
we through science have found out that certain characteristic traits, personality traits can be passed down through your genes. It's not just your hair color, your eye color, your skin tone and pigment that you get from your parents or your grandparents. It can also be other characteristic fate traits that will affect your overall fate if you are not careful and vigilant of what type of person you want to become or allow yourself to become on a daily basis. Speaking more to that point and the idea of only God can judge me and don't judge me by the by the people that I'm with and that kind of aspect. Number one, there's no such thing as a good kid in a bad crowd. The reason you're hanging out with them is because you have something in common. The only reason why people will drag someone else into their circle that doesn't necessarily belong there, that sticks out like a sore thumb, is either to try and flip them, to change them. When, say, an extrovert tries to incorporate someone that they know is a good person that they like, that's an introvert and tries to bring them out into a more social aspect to try and encourage them to grow their social characteristic traits and skills. The other reason is for very nefarious reasons when, as we've seen portrayed in almost every movie in the late 90s and early 2000s, inviting a girl to a party because she's ugly and then finally laughing at her. And then somehow or another, she comes back as the beautiful swan and takes off her glasses and somehow that makes her a 10. Bottom line, the only reason why people incorporate themselves into groups of others in a social environment that they would not naturally tend to lean into is from some form of external force, either on the part of the person that's pulling them in or even the part of the person that may not necessarily lean that way, but wants to try and become more social or whatever the case may be. I want to be cool, so I'm going to go with the guys and knock over some mailboxes. I want to be cool. So I'm going to join the football team, whatever the case is. Right. So when you sit here and say, not you, but the proverbial you, when someone sit here and says that you can't judge somebody by the people that they hang out with, that's them. That's not me. Granted, that's true to a large degree. However, you can be a, grouped into an association as to affiliation based on if you are so far apart, if you are so much unalike, why are you with them? Now, there's grounds for why you would be with them as well. For example, if I'm a quote unquote outspoken Christian and I don't know, let's say someone that I know does drugs or should be paying alimony or child support and they're not, I would associate myself with them to a, to a limited degree. Friend everybody, be friends to everybody, but be friend, meaning tr- want them to be just as much of a friend to you as you are to them, be friend to bring into your inner circle a very few limited number of people. Be nice to everybody, trust very few. That's the easiest way I know how to say it. Just because I don't necessarily trust you with my car doesn't mean I'm not going to be nice to you. Just because I don't necessarily trust you to pick up my kids from daycare doesn't mean I'm not going to necessarily not be nice to you. There's limitations and levels to it. Um, And in that same respect, the level in which you allow yourself to be affiliated with someone is how you're going to be somewhat associationally judged with them. Now, if you also sit here and say, not you again, proverbial you, if someone were to sit here and I always say you, sorry, that's gotta be very confrontational, very off-putting. If, <clears throat> if someone were to sit here, and, if someone were to sit here and say that, I don't understand that sin, that punching my mom in the face is bad because I've never done it. But my friend John did it. And I saw him do it. And when I saw him do it, 
and I saw her reaction, then I realized how bad it was. I know I was told not to. I know I told it wasn't a good thing to do. I know I told it wasn't right, but I never really understood why until I saw it. There's grounds to that in a lot of ways. Absolutely, for sure. And I have personal experience in that in my own life. And I know we all do with our own sinful ways and whatever debauchery that we partake in in different forms. Some people may say something is the worst thing in the world and other people, that's just their natural reaction on a Friday or a Monday. But however we allow ourselves to be desensitized to certain circumstances or environments is going to then portray how we will respond and act in other moral, potentially compromising or defining moments. I'll give you an example that I used to give a youth group back in the day. They knew that I was obviously youth pastor. And I said, what would you do if on one of the Fridays that I came by the school to pick everybody up to go get pizza or whatever we were going to do, if I came by and I parked the car in a parking lot, got out and met a guy in the parking lot, he handed me a box. And in the box was a kitten. And we get to the church, wherever we're going, I take the box and I say, hey, I'll be right back. And I go around the back of the building and I'm gone for five minutes, 10 minutes. Y'all don't know what happened. I come back and I don't have the box anymore. First time you'd probably be like, where'd the kitten go? And I'm like, oh, don't worry about it. It went home. Second week, this happens in a row or say this second month, it happens once a month, whatever the per, whatever it is, week, month, whatever. The next time that you see me, I have the box again. And then you say, where are you going with it? And I tell you, oh, I'm going around the back. You don't want to come. Don't worry about it. And you come and follow me and you see the fact that I'm actually stomping this cat to death. And that's how I tell you, I handle my stress. I don't cuss. I don't smoke. I don't gamble. I don't drink. I don't have sex. I don't do anything like that. This is my one and only vice. And it's only one a month, 12 a year. That's about a litter of kittens that happens every six weeks. I think I'm allowed. You'd probably be freaked out and grossed beyond belief and probably not want to talk to me anymore. Understandable. Well, let's say at a group of 20, there's always going to be one or two that's still curious or really just don't care or have enough traumatic events going on in their own house that they probably, that's whatever, not bothering me. Someone will stick around. Someone will come back and talk. Someone will come back and want to hang out. You may not necessarily want to be around and, and be involved in it, but you know it happens. And so now you're at a point where it's like, oh, he has a box. All right, I'm going to leave him alone. I'm going to go play Xbox or whatever. And when he's done, we can hang out and get and chill. Something's going to happen in your life that's going to bring you to a point of frustration, angst, anxiety, anger, depression, something beyond what you are now. That's called life. Highs and lows. And sometimes those highs and lows are better and worse than what they were a year ago or five years ago or what you've ever experienced before. And when you're at that new ground of a low, you'll probably wonder, huh, you know, he doesn't drink. He doesn't smoke. He doesn't gamble. He doesn't have sex. He doesn't do anything else. But that one cat, is it really that good? So then you come over and you see me have the box and you go, Hey, do you mind if I just talk to you? Yeah, sure. I'm going to, do you mind if I follow you and just watch? Okay. So now you watch me partake in this debauchery. Now you have desensitized yourself further and time goes on. And eventually you'll get to the point where you'll say, mind if I have a try just once, let me just kick it once, see what it's like. And eventually time will happen where you'll get to a point where you'll be doing something that you once thought was so bad, like killing a kitten that you never thought in your life you would and flash forward however long months, weeks, years, and you're going to go, how the hell did I get here? I want to quit this. Cigarettes is one of those things for me. And I felt like I couldn't amongst other things. My point is I didn't need to do any of those things. I needed, I didn't need to indulge into any form of debauchery to know that it was bad. I heard about it and I thought, oh my God, that's terrible. 
I hear about the idea of children being touched and I want to kill somebody. And I know that's another sin. Tying that into the sin that you describe that Jesus performed when running the money changers out of the temple, the reason why God was different from the Old Testament to the New, some people believe that there are two gods. The Aryan belief of two semi-gods, not God and a demigod, but two semi-gods, that there is a God of Old Testament and God of New Testament. They're both equal and they're both equally powerful. They're just two different entities, like two brothers. One's angry, one's nice. The problem with that idea is that it flies in the face of all the context of what the Bible says of, I am but one God. I am a jealous God. There is no, you shall not put any other God before me. Jesus even reaffirmed this in the New Testament when the, when the Pharisees asked him, of all the laws of Moses, which one is the most important? They tried to trap him by saying that, tell us what's the most important law, Jesus, because then by default, he's saying that another law is least important or less important, and that would be heresy. So they were going to try and trick him and then have that as the grounds to arrest and then stone him or kill him in another form or way. And Jesus said, love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul, and love man as yourself. Among these two things hang all other laws. Now, when you compare the Old Testament and the New Testament, the New Testament has roughly, by that account, two laws, two mandates. If you follow those two mandates, you're good. The Old Testament has over 384 different accounts that man must follow, including washing your hands before and after you, before you eat, going 70 paces out of your house, digging a hole roughly about six inches deep, and defecating into the hole rather than going in your home. A lot of these laws were made specifically for our well-being and our health. Some of these laws were made specifically just to show how hard it would be to justifiably call yourself worthy of heaven and not hell, post fall of humanity, eating of the apple, participation in sin, not temptation, but participation in sin, post participation in sin. <laughs> Most of these laws were made just to show us you can't do it. That's why God in the Old Testament was such a hard ass, because he was showing us this is life with sin and you being in charge of your own salvation. You think you can do it? Try it. The reason why no one went into heaven prior to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and resurrection was because when Jesus died, it says that every knee in heaven and hell and on earth is going to bow. That's in Revelation. That's what's going to happen when he comes back. He literally took the, gate, the keys of, hell, of, of death and reclaimed the souls of those that had died died prior to him. So there was a purgatory no longer necessary because those that were worthy of God through the continual, the continual sacrifices that needed to happen. So for example, when Jesus, John, uh, Joseph and Mary went back to Bethlehem, there was a couple of reasons for that. Primarily it was because of the census. That was how states kept a number of tally of people in their cities and their countries. That was how they knew how many people they could tax from. So the idea of taxation has always been around and you're never going to get away from it. That's part of the joke. Why the two things you can always count on is death and taxes. So to think that there's something racist about a census is hysterical to me. That's a side note. Furthermore, the other reason why people would travel is because they would have to go every four years to their temple, their home church, their home temple, their synagogue, and have 
the blood of the sacrifice that they would bring sprinkled upon them. So in the temple, there's seven different rooms, five different rooms in the back, back, back room where they would keep the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the main temple of all the land of all Jerusalem, of all Israel, they would keep the Ark of the Covenant. Now in every Holy of Holy room, that is where God's presence in pure form was. In order for the priest to go and enter into that room to have the blood then blessed, to be a priest, you would have to be of the tribe of Levi. Now, that doesn't mean that every Levi was a priest, but every priest had to be a Levi. That was their designated possible role to play in society. Because of their genealogy being so close and quote-unquote pure and, and, and chosen for that specific purpose. But even then, if the priest was not worthy enough, if he had sinned, if he hadn't asked for forgiveness enough, if he hadn't cleansed enough, if he, hadn't, if he had any amount of little traces of sin within him or on him, he would immediately die in that room. And there was no way for that, anyone else to enter that room to take out his corpse. So what they would do is they would tie a rope to his left ankle. And if they heard a body fall and hit the floor, they would pull on the rope and drag him out. If he didn't, he'd come back out and they'd loosen the rope. So they would have to travel periodically and have their sins atoned for. And these sins mean from such as working on the Sabbath. And by working on the Sabbath, the defining definition of that was taking no more than 15 paces away from your, from something that you owned is the way that they described it. So the pharisaical, pharisaical way around that was on Saturday, they would take some of their items in their home, a lamp, a table, whatever, whatever, kerosene, whatever. And every 15 paces, they would put it on the road, something down. If they knew, oh man, I need to go get milk or, you know, whatever, whatever. They would take items from their home and every 15 paces, they would place them down on the road so they would still be within the law. Another rule was, for example, to wash your hands before you ate. The God's rule initially, and I think it was in Leviticus, if I'm not mistaken, said to wash your hands. So then it was then readapted to say, what is your hand? Well, initially it was hand to wrist. Then the, defini the defining word was then changed because they said, we want to make sure everybody is good. We don't want anyone to be uh, misinterpreting this. So we're going to say fingertip to elbow. So when Jesus came on the scene and he was washing his hands before he ate and he only washed his hands from finger to wrist after so many years and generations of people practicing hand meant this, and they only saw him do this. That was one of the biggest faux pas that a lot of Pharisees had with him. And Jesus went back to them and said, tell me what the word really says, what to wash. And when they read that word, because initially all they meant was, well, we've only known it to be fingertip to elbow, but yeah, I know it means hand, but, and I know that this isn't hand, but you also look into the customary time to shake hands in the Roman empire, you would grab their forearm as well. And that was a sign of full embrace of trust. And you would give the hand that was predominantly the one used in combat to swing, which was your right hand, because the majority of people are right-handed. And that was a sign of submission of trust. Okay. So there's more to this than what I'm just being told by the experts. I need to understand this for myself on a personal level. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Whatever. You got me there. You got me there. All right, Jesus. To then understand where Jesus went into the temple and flipped the tables in anger over the coin, uh, over the money changers, it begs the question to me, what would make this man who would stay on the cross be whipped, 
spat in the face, put a crown of thorns on, wrongfully judged, killed. What would keep him and his humanity from self-defense, but then fly off the rails at some dudes with some tables in the church selling some stuff? He's cool with you killing him slowly, but he's upset at you selling some things in church. See, that always threw me off. It was a similar question to why everybody says Adolf Hitler hated the Jews, but why did he hate them? What did they do? What was his reasoning behind hating them that nobody asks? And so when I can throw those into there, big boy. So it's not lost on me. <laughs> so when Jesus was in the temple and the idea of money changers. So I think immediately my first thought was you go to the bank, I'm changing American dollars to pesos or to francs or to Deutschmarks or to euros or whatever. Well, the reality of it was it was currency changing, meaning you're, cha- you're paying money for a sacrificial animal that would change. And this is my definition of it. That would change the current of your blessing, the current, the flow current, the current flow of your blessing. So say, for example, if church today required you to bring, first of all, your religion required you, required you to raise goats, calves, rams, sheep, something, ox, some form of stock breed. I don't care if you live in New York City in a penthouse or out in the middle of Kansas. If you're a Christian, you have to raise stock breed. Well, that's more convenient for others than it is others. So in order for me to partake in my religious holidays and, and rituals, I know I need to bring my first tenths as my sacrifice. Well, if I'm not raising anything, then I don't have anything to sacrifice. Well, now what do I do? Well, don't worry. <laughs> Industry's got you. We have, a, we have a fix for that. All you have to do is buy one of our sheep, buy one of our goats, buy one of our lambs for a low, low price of whatever it was as you enter into the temple and you're good. Is that the same sacrifice that a farmer would go through? No. And that parallels for me, the understanding of true hunting, being a true hunter versus what a lot of people think hunting is. Hunting doesn't begin or even end at pulling a trigger. That's a small part of it. That's the smallest part of the hunt. You begin by tilling the ground. You begin by planting the feed that they're going to eat. You begin by planting the thicket that they're going to let, that they're going to rest in. You begin by ensuring there's fresh water sources. You begin by ensuring you keep the uh, predator amount, the, the number of predators on the, on the area that you want your deer or hog or whatever you're hunting low enough where it'll, they'll feel safe and attracted to. And that doesn't mean that you just shoot anything that you see. You have to create shooting lanes out of the tree branches so you don't nick a branch and throw your trajectory of your bullet off and then potentially miss altogether or just maim them inhumanely. It also means that you don't just shoot the first thing you see coming out of the line in your shooting lane either. It means you put up cameras, you take documented levels of, of growth on the, the animal, the elder, the older males, the older females, when they're going in rut, when they're giving birth, progression, progressingly see their, their kids raise and grow older. Most animals in the, in the kingdom of nature, when they get to a certain age, males will fight for dominance and territory. Specifically speaking of deer, they will fight to the death. They will gore each other and leave each other maimed 
to die a very slow death if necessary. If they don't kill each other immediately, the loser is then exiled out of their herd and he's left to fend for himself. Wolves, coyotes, um, even, even stray dogs will attempt to kill it when they're hungry enough. A stray dog will even, if it's a bigger enough breed. Um, and that's a very painful, slow death. Even if they're not gored, dying of starvation is probably one of the most horrific ways to die I can imagine. Um, but then you add into the equation uh, a gut wound that's going to get inevitably infected, that's going to cause all kinds of complications. That's terrible. So the most humane way to take out an elderly deer who is in his prime, who's at the high of the table, but you see his uh, children, his fondling, his fawns are you know, getting older, his young bucks are growing up, and they're about ready to fight for the head of the table. It's better to go out on top with one bullet than it is minutes, even an hour more of fighting, and then be left to stranded alone to die and be pulled apart by wolves. There's a process to the idea of hunting similar. There is a process to raising an animal that you would then take to sacrifice on your behalf of your sin. There is a level of understanding. There is a level of literally giving up of like, I have raised this animal for seven years, four years, and now he's in his prime. And now we're going to church and now I'm putting him on the altar. There is something to be said for devoting energy and effort into something to then give it up on for someone else, similar to life. Like we started this podcast on when you sacrifice something for somebody, that means that you have an understanding of what it is you're giving up in order for the person or entity that you're doing it for. If all you're doing is walking up, paying 10 bucks and getting something out of a cage and throwing it up on the altar, you didn't sacrifice anything. That's what Jesus was upset about. People that were faking a relationship with God, people that were faking having an understanding of what forgiveness really was people that were choosing to cheat, not only God, not only themselves out of a real relationship with God, but God out of a real relationship with them, but then still portray as if they had it all and then cause even more confusion and distension amongst non-Christians because they really aren't living any different than the heathen, the heathens. They're not living any different than the pagans, but they're calling themselves Christians. And that's what God calls godly anger. He says, anger yourselves for what makes me anger. Cry, be pained for the things that hurt me. Be joyful for the things that I'm joyful for. Later on in the New Testament, it says that God will give you whatever your heart desires. That's probably one of the most commonly abused verses in the Bible. But people refuse to read a few verses ahead of that. What says, make your heart after my own, meaning if you want what I want, I'll give it to you. In perspective, as a parent with my children, I want my kids to be happy. I want my kids to not cry and fight and argue. I love it when I get to let them stay up at night and have popcorn and movies with them in their room. And we lay in their tent and have movie night. I love doing that with them, but I'm sure as hell not going to do that with them when all they do is, if all they ever did was give me lip and back talk and not do what I asked them to do after until after I asked them for it for a hundred times and threatened to, you know, pow them. But if like the other night, my oldest daughter, we asked her to clean up the living room before dinner and she didn't finish. And I said, come on and sit down. Your food's getting cold. We can pick it up after you're done eating. She gets done eating. She takes her plate to the dish, to the sink. 
goes to the bathroom, washes her hands, goes back to the living room. Didn't tell her to do any of this. Goes back to the living room, picks up the rest of the living room. I'm too oblivious to notice that she's doing this because I'm still shoveling food in my face. And then she comes to me and says, okay, daddy, the whole living room's clean. And I turned around and I was like, holy cow, I didn't even tell you to do that. And she goes, no, but you, you told me I needed to before dinner. And I was so impressed. I said, that's, that's, that's it, baby. That's it. That's how you get more. That's how you get more. You want to know a secret? You want, you want daddy to tell you a secret that only parents are supposed to know? I, I tell you that because then it makes it, oh yeah, tell me, tell me. When you do good, it makes me want to give you more that's good. When you argue and you backtalk and you sass, that doesn't make daddy want to give you more. That makes me sad. But when you're happy and you do things because you know you should, that makes me want to give you more. And her little face glue, like, oh, that's how God is with us. See, the reason why there always was a requirement for a blood sacrifice for the atonement of sin wasn't because God was this angry, debaucherous being up in space that just wanted to see things be in pain. It was because he wanted us to have an understanding of the weight of what sin causes and to be thankful that we would have animals that would at that time take our place for that bloodshed. And now be even more grateful because we don't even have to do any of that anymore. We've had the one sacrifice that only has ever had to last from that point forward. So the reason why Jesus got upset at the money exchangers, I don't believe was because he fell into human emotion and had a, an oopsie. I don't think Jesus or God as Jesus had to understand what human depravity is like or pain is like to then understand what to do with humanity. I believe God is all-knowing. Therefore, he already knew it. Steve Jobs never had to go take a class on how to work an iPhone. He built it. Bill Gates never had to go to a workshop on how to work an Excel spreadsheet. He built it. God never had to go to a workshop of understanding humanity through being human in order to understand us. He built us in his image. See, unlike man who can create things that, like in Apollo 13, one of the most memorable moments to me was when... The space station manager, I forgot his, the, the base commander, I forgot his position title and all that. He said, I don't care what the ship was built to do. I want to know what it can do. And that's how humans treat creation, creating the act of creation. We'll build something. How many, I mean, nuclear weaponry, vaccines. How many things have we built for one purpose and then find out we can use them for a totally different one? Dynamite. Dynamite was made for the specific use of moving boulders and rocks and, and, and mining. Come to find out it's a great tool for war. Many things have been built for one purpose and then utilized for a completely different enterprise. But with God, there is nothing that his creation can do that he did not already know it could happen. The difference between having full autonomy over your life, free will, control, and God having all-knowing power, understanding, can live can coexist simultaneously in the understanding that I can plant a seed in the ground and know that it's a fruit tree. I know it's an orange tree or an apple tree. I know that's what it is by the seed of what I planted. I know that's what it's going to be. Now, if I didn't know what it was, I wouldn't know what it would be. I wouldn't know if it was going to be a tree or a vine or a rose. I wouldn't know any of that. I would know something was going to grow, hopefully, but I wouldn't know what it is. 
But God knows what that seed is. And furthermore, he knows from a bird's eye view, not only what you are, but who you are going to be by having a bird's eye view of seeing that tree grow from a seed into a stem and then into a foundational root base and then into a trunk and then throughout every branch and every tree limb and every leaf that'll be on that tree. God knows that you're starting from this one base earth. And from there, what path you're going to take on all these different avenues called your life, where are you going to end up? God can see the whole tree. He knows that you're in, you could go here, you could go there, you could do this, or you could do that, or you could be over here, or you could be over there. That's why he could say, I want you to do X, Y, and Z. And if you don't, doesn't mean your life is over. It doesn't mean doesn't have a purpose for you anymore. It doesn't mean that, oh, well, you're just SOL out of luck. You're not going to be utilized by God anymore. No, you still have other options over here. You're not going to be able to go back in time and do this over here, but you can still have that. That's still an option. That's still plausible. So that's your new goal. Just like the initial desire of God, his initial will was that we would not need to see firsthand and fall into the temptation of sin by parti by, through participation of sin, but use the temptation of sin as the catalyst, as we agreed earlier, to be what would thrust us into being fully comprehensible of free will and still choosing to do the right thing. Yet, even though we fell, we were not forgotten. Just as the Bible says, Jesus is that shepherd that goes, even if 99 are there, he goes after the one that's lost. But what is, what is a good shepherd? What does a shepherd do when they find that lost sheep? The images of Jesus holding a sheep around his neck, but no one discusses why the sheep is around his neck. Why doesn't he put a rope around its neck and lead it back? Why doesn't he whip the sheep back into the direction of all the other sheep? He a shepherd will break the leg of a sheep that ran away. That's why they carry it on their neck because they broke a leg and they break the leg to allow them to endure pain, to understand that it could have been a lot worse. They could have been eaten by a wolf. They could have been torn limb from limb. They could have been, they could have fallen off a cliff and died. They could have had whatever happened to them, but thank God the shepherd found you and you're going to endure a little pain to understand. Don't do that again. You knew better. You knew you shouldn't have done that. And without consequences, it's only a hollow threat. See, God loves us enough that he wanted us to be saved, but he also loves us enough to always, always be true to his word and never go back on it. I've already encountered with my three and four-year-old times where I've threatened them, no dessert if you don't do this or that or whatever, and then they don't. And then I sit there and go, fuck, now what do I do? Because I really want a dessert too. <laughs> and it's like, shit, I can't have it either. Well, I either follow through or they learn at a young age, dad's a pushover. And they also learn that daddy's a liar. And if daddy's going to lie about something that's going to get me in trouble, what else does he lie about? What else is he not going to be consistent on? I guess if I just complain enough, I guess if I just push back enough, I'll get my way. God loves us enough to keep those penalties in place, but he loved us enough to give us an out where the punishment is still requiring blood, but by the grace of God and love of Jesus, not ours. And for those of us, in the audience, the five Moroccan guys that want to know our COVID update, uh, just look at the mega folder. We're done talking about that shit. That shit's old news. We're about new shit now, and that's all we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot we were talking about that. Yeah. Well, it was, I think it was a good episode. We rambled, but I think it was a good ramble. It was a good ramble. I'm proud of you. You rambled real good. You rambled real good there, Kenny. You're my boy. Well, we'll see you all in the next 
fucking uh, episode, right? Yeah. Oh, Hopefully it'll we'll, be uh, sooner than two weeks. And real quick, the thing I don't give a fuck about is uh, gov- former Governor Cuomo and his apologies. The man's been in office for 11 years and people knew people knew this man was doing his perverted stuff. And his only defense is, well, I did it to men, too. I did it to everybody. And that's going to be the thing that gets him kicked out of office. Not the fact that he killed over hundreds of elderly people in nursing homes by exposing them to a virus that is specifically targeting an elderly and most immune compromised form of, of uh, society. No, we're not going to do anything about that because that would cause other governors to be in question and most democratic leaders. So we're just going to put them on the sacrificial altar of today's wokeness and say it was because of the me too movement. That's no, well, in his actual defense to be uh, to all, uh, to all the, fairness to uh andy cuomo was that it wasn't i do this to everybody it's that i'm old and italian that was his official uh, statement i'm just italian that's what and we every do italian we do that every italian should be wrecking his door down knock 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 i knocked on your door a thousand times where's my cannoli knock knock <laughs> knock <sighs> but you wouldn't listen you should never buy a grandma mess from a memorial it's so chewy <laughs> adios y'all till the next episode yeah, like, share, subscribe. Appreciate y'all. Thank you so much. And uh, we've seen you on the next one. Oh, um, hopefully we're, if you uh, if you really want to follow us, follow us on Minds right now. I think that's going to be the mm-hmm. platform we're really going to focus on. And I think Andy's going to get an only, OnlyFans account. So be on the lookout. Mm-hmm. Only a dollar. Only a dollar and you'll see my feet. Worth it.